Welcome back to the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur Podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and I am joined once again by a friend of the show, Mitch, from the Video Vacuum. Welcome back, Mitch. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Yes, yeah, so I was wondering if you are going to say thanks for having, having me up after we talk about the movie here that, that we ended up watching. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's, um, maybe we'll kind of just kind of dive right into sort of what we'll be chatting about today. But um, we're, we're, we're talking about the film Pups Alone, um, and... I think part of the reason why, I don't know about you, but the moment I saw that this movie was released last year, I was intrigued and, and, and wanted to cover it in some fashion. Well, I mean, it it checks a lot of boxes for, uh, you know, both of our, our websites. You know, it's got the, the cast and it's got the, the cheesy Christmas uh, atmosphere going for it. And I, I think going into it, I, I think I, I won't say I had high hopes, but I was like, well, you, you've got a... a a cast full of people that I'll pretty much watch anything that they're in. And, and this movie kind of tested that, uh, the, that theory of, uh, uh, movie watching. Yes, for sure. And, and the other thing too, is this, um, this movie was, uh, was, was directed by, um, uh, Alex Merkin. I think I'm pronouncing it, Alex Merkin. Um, and he did altitude, which we both covered for the podcast a, a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2020, um, we both enjoyed that one. So that was another thing that this movie, we, we felt like it had going for it. Yeah, I mean, it reteams him and Dolph. And, uh, and you know, that was the thing for me. I was like, well, well, Dolph is kind of being cast against type here in uh, this children's Christmas movie. And it, it, it kind of is kind of like a, a really kind of, you know, DTV version of uh, the uh, Disney Santa Claus, uh, Santa Buddies kind of uh, Air Buddies uh, genre of talking dog movies. And uh, I, I, I think it, he actually looked like he was having fun kind of playing against type, playing like a role that I, I think you would see like a Richard Kind or a John Lovitz play, like the, the, the smarmy uh, – co-worker that's trying to get one over on the hero and it looked like he was having fun but uh that didn't translate to the audience at all no no exactly and, and i think you make a great point of the type of character he played because i think that the richard kind um comparison is is probably perfect and i think for people watching this you know if you, you you're familiar with richard kind's work the idea of dolph playing that character is 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 probably enough to get you in the door, which, like you said, it's probably it, it's uh it's enough to get you in the door, but when you get in the door, it's it's a little bit rough. And uh, you know, just from the title alone, I feel like the you know, you kind of know what you're getting into. Pups alone, you're like, okay, it's gonna be home alone version, uh, but uh, but with dogs, and it kind of uh, you know. It's it's funny because it says pups alone, but they're dogs. They're not actual pups. It it, it might have been you know not that it would save the movie, but they're not actually like cute little puppies. They're actually kind of just these kind of like ragtag group of dogs. And it's like even from the you know I, I felt misled there. I was like okay, I I came in expecting pups, little dogs, and 
these are full grown dogs. And, you know, right away I was like, strike one. <laughs> right. Cause right. Cause when you hear pups, you're right. Like you think of almost like this situation of like, maybe like the, the, the family, like, like maybe like a box of puppies is left on the door step or something like that. And it's like, Oh, what is this, this, you know, this dad and, and his daughter going to do with these puppies that are just kind of roaming around causing trouble, you know, chewing things and all of that stuff. And then they, like you said, like they, maybe they, they kind of get it together um, and, and save the house from robbers um, and in a way that almost could have been a more fun concept. Uh, and it, so it had the great voice work from all the voice work actors that we had in this, um, that they, they could have done that and, uh, and still had it work. Yeah. I mean, you have, with Danny Trejo, uh, we have Rob Schneider, uh, Malcolm McDowell, uh, like, you know, it's like a who's who list, but, uh, it's funny there. They didn't even try to lip sync the dogs. It's, it's like a, who's look, who's talking kind of deal where, you know, the, the dialogue is just poorly dubbed in every time they cut to a dog. And sometimes it doesn't even fit. Sometimes they have to like cut to some random, house or tree to get all that their dialogue in uh and it was just it felt really desperate and shoehorned and poorly kind of cobbled together yeah yeah this is this is going to be an interesting conversation but maybe i'll i'll, I'll do a quick synopsis and i'll see if yeah. i can i'll see if i hit this. know what we're getting into here right exactly so so the basic premise is we have an actor uh, tyler hollinger he plays a a um an inventor who we were given like this sort of like it's not even a cartoon right it's like drawings of cartoons that aren't in motion that i guess it's like supposed to give us like this, yeah it's like a pot right that's supposed to be like giving us the backstory and, and this is sort of a way that the film it which kind of blows my mind this film was an hour and 45 minutes long and they still had to use these like the this this device to move the plot along like imagining them not using that part of it and giving it i mean it would have been like over two hours if they hadn't used these 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 cartoons um but we're told through the cartoons that um uh that, that this character robert um he was married um had a daughter uh, wife passed away but he and the wife were like inventing things together and he he's never quite gotten over um the death of the wife and then um as an inventor he gets a job with um uh, eric roberts has a company which i guess is it a pet electronics company is that what they were doing it was like a pet invention for, it was almost like a Silicon Valley for pet inventions or something. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and in true Silicon Valley fashion, he's flown out to California where he lives um, in a, a sort of a housing development that all of the other people in the, the company work or live in. Um, among the people we're living there, we've got Dolph, who plays Victor, who's across the street, who, like you said, he's like a Richard Kind kind of character who's really obnoxious, um, has a really rough, grating personality. Uh, and he he's he wants to move up in the company, but Eric Roberts, I think, because he because of his personality and his inability to do inventions, uh, actually demotes him. And so he's always trying to go behind people's back to sort of either steal their inventions or or sabotage their inventions so he can sort of move ahead. Um, and then we have Holly, who's played by Sarah Lindsay, who is um, this beautiful blonde woman who walks her dog in cocktail dresses um, in the neighborhood and. <laughs> automatically has a thing for Robert, despite not knowing who he is or anything like that. Um, and, and so then, so that those are our characters. And of course, um, uh, the, the daughter's played by Isadora Swan. Um, and so the daughter is trying to push the dad to sort of get over the loss of the mother and also to sort of, she's, she's upset about the fact that they're moving to this new area, but she's trying to make the best of it. And 
essentially what happens is, is that they, they go on a company retreat to Big Bear, sort of at the daughter's insistence that they should make this trip. And of course, Dolph also insists that they go. And we find out Dolph insists that they go because uh, two bumbling crooks, which these movies always have bumbling crooks. We have um, Nicholas Totoro, who plays one of them. And then um, I don't even know who the other one was. Um, I guess Stelio Savante was maybe the actor, but he's the the the, the less bright of the, of the bumbling crooks, um, Stelio Savante. But Dolph hires them to break into Robert's house to steal his invention, which the invention is um, a, a dog collar that translates dog speech, um, which I don't even know how that works. Um, it, I guess <laughs> if the dog growls or something, I mean, I don't even know if the dog thinks, um, if they think sound waves or something, but, but that's the invention. And so the idea is that they're trying to steal this invention. Um, at the same time, we have um, the dog. They have a dog in their family. The dog's name is Charlie, uh, and our, our, it, it is the voice by Jerry O'Connell. And when they move into the neighborhood, um, Dolph also has a dog, a bulldog that's voiced by Danny Trejo, who's kind of like known as the dog father. He's the um, the, the area like bully of, amongst the other dogs. Um, we also have Gidget, who's voiced by Jennifer Love Hewitt, who is um, Holly's dog. And then Rob Schneider, who he does a Chihuahua's voice, but I think he does a lot of other voices as well. I think he kind of voices all the other dogs uh, beyond that. Uh, but those, these neighborhood dogs are kind of giving Charlie a hard time at the same time. And um, he's sort of having to fight back against these neighborhood dogs um, while Nicholas Totoro is coming to break into the house. And kind of as everything goes together, Nicholas Totoro and the other guy decide that why are we breaking into this one house when we can break into all the houses in the neighborhood because everybody's in Big Bear. And that's when they're able to get all the dogs to rally together and fight off these baddies. And then the whole thing just devolves into craziness at the end um, with like uh, home invasion, uh, people being tied up uh, and, and in kind of a goofy way, right? This is all done goofily, but um, yeah, it's just kind of all over the place at that point. But um, yeah, I think as we, maybe we'll go, I think it's enough of a, of a synopsis, but I think you kind of hit the nail on the head here with this, Mitch, because I think this, I was the same for me, um, that this was not a one sitting movie. Um, this was something that took a few, a few sittings to get through. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you go over the plot, it's just like, <laughs> man, that's just, a, that's like, it, it almost felt like it was two movies. It felt like there should have been the first movie uh, where they get the dog and then, you know, he's dealing with, you know, the loss of his wife and, you know, moving. And then the next movie would have been the uh, Home Alone thing. Like they could have called the first one Inventing Christmas because he's inventing all this stuff or something. And then the second one would have been Pups Alone. And I think that's where the pop up book uh, uh, kind of uh, scene fillers kind of came into play. It almost felt like you were watching like a pilot episode of something and then the very next episode because it, it, it like you said they 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 just all up and go to big bear and it felt like a very kind of like abrupt kind of just kind of convenient thing just to to get everybody out of the house and it it, it just really didn't flow i mean there I, I watched it with my daughter actually, and, and when she was younger, she liked the like the uh, the buddies movies, the Air Buddy movies, and I told her about the movie, and she was like, "Oh my god, like that sounds like one of those old movies," and even she was like, "Man, this this is pretty bad." <laughs> right? Yeah, and I, I had planned on maybe watching it with my my wife, and we didn't end up making it happen. I had to just, I had to kind of get it in the can um, as as, much, as soon as possible because because she likes these bad Christmas movies, and we watched them together. Sometimes um. Uh, we watched one recently that was um, nine 
nine kittens at Christmas or something like that. And it had Brandon Ruth, of all people, in it, um, you know, former Superman, um, which was kind of funny to watch Brandon Ruth in amongst like all these other actors who weren't at the Brandon Ruth level. I think Gregory Harrison was the only other actor in it. But anyway, but, but you know, it, it, even that movie, like watching that movie, like she and I were picking it apart, but it wasn't like as difficult a sit as this was. Like we were able to watch that 90 minutes and enjoy it for 90 minutes, whereas this is like you get started in it and you're like, boy, this feels like a lot has happened in the, in the first half hour. And then you look at the slider and realize I'm only 15 minutes in. Yeah, I mean, it, it was like that the whole way. And uh, I watched it on Roku, yeah. and they would have the uh, the commercials kind of awkwardly randomly cut in. Yeah. And I happened to look, it says 146 minutes. I'm like, well, they have to be counting the the commercials because every, you know, every 10 minutes there's a two-minute commercial break. And then about... 30 minutes into it, I was like, oh, no, they're they're not counting the commercial time. This is actually a – like, you know, this is like Gone with the Wind length for talking dog movies. <laughs> yes. uh, and like I said, like they're – like I – like oh, we forgot to mention uh, Keith David is the wise bartender, <laughs> uh, you know, who kind of imparts like the, the last-minute holiday wisdom to our, our hero – and it, it was just kind of odd, too, that like who was the live action people and who were just kind of like the probably recorded their dialogue on their cell phone on the way to the, you know, it, it's I mean, it's not to the level of like a talking cat bad, but <laughs> uh, at least a talking cat is so bad that you're it, it has this like weird mystique about it. And this was just kind of just kind of punishingly grueling just to get through the simplest scenes yeah and and it's interesting because when you you know talking cat is a really good comp in the sense that like talking cat also has a really great cast right you know you've got um uh uh, mclean stevenson harry morgan um i I can't remember the the actor's name who played the the son on on mama's family Uh, but you know you had names in that movie as well, and it was kind of fun to watch them interact with this cat that was, you know, it, yeah, it was it was a goofy concept. Um, but, you know, here it was like, I think part of it was the jokes were just kind of just everywhere. Um, but also it felt like people were talking over each other at points. Like there's a point where Dolph's on the phone with Nicholas Totoro, and they're just talking over each other. Like they're not even, like it, like the whole thing just had this sort of helter-skelter feel to it that didn't help. Um, like you said, when you're talking about a talking dog movie, it needs to be kind of straight to the point. And when it's all over the place, it makes it even worse. Yeah. And like, like I said, it just seemed like there was an abundance of dialogue and even like, it felt like they were cramming a lot of the dialogue in and they would have to cut to random things just to, to set up plot points that really didn't need to be set up. But it, and a lot of it was just kind of, uh, you, I mean, I, I can't. First of all, I can't believe anybody over the age of six would willingly watch this the way that we watched it. Right. But like, like it just it, it didn't even uh, function on, on just like a basic filmmaking level of point shoot, just get all the information. You know, like master shots. A lot of it was like cut up very strangely, like like they didn't have enough coverage or they were using all the coverage they had just to pad out the scene. Like there's the one scene where the the little girl comes and tells her dad, like, you know, you need to get over it. You need, you know, 
you know, mom's dead, you know, you need to move on. And they show like, I think six or seven different reaction shots. Like one time, like he puts his hand to his chin and then the other time he adjusts his glasses. And then sometimes you see like leans back and it's like, it seems like he's reacting to the, you know, it's like seven reaction shots when only one really needed to be done. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you mentioned about the, the editing piece because um on, on Sean Malloy's I Must Break This podcast, he actually had, I think he had director Alex Merkin on because um, they mentioned the fact that Alex Merkin, he's kind of known for um, one thing he's known for, it, which I don't know if it's known for is the right term, but he um, he directed the film the Brittany Murphy film that was released right before she passed away. Um, and it's called uh, Across the Hall. And I think it was like released in 09 and then two weeks later she passed away. So that's kind of like a sort of like a, a macabre thing that he he kind of, you know, was sort of known. They, they kind of discussed that piece of it. And then they get into the movie. And one of the things he kind of talked about as a positive that I don't know is necessarily a positive is that this thing was filmed over a long period of time in, in July or in, uh, sorry, in, in 2017, but kind of over a period of years, actors were brought back in to do scenes. And I wonder if there isn't some sort of advantage to the David Dakota, Fred Olin Ray, like we've rented out a, a mansion and we're going to do this thing in, in uh, three or four days and get it out there that like sometimes like trying to go too much for all of that kind of stuff with a movie like this, that maybe that's where you need a Dakota to come in and just get it done quick and dirty for us as a movie watcher. Sometimes maybe that's a better bet. Yeah. I mean, now that you said that, it definitely makes sense. Cause a lot of it feels very piecemeal together. And even the, uh, uh, the, the dad character, his, he looks like he, he kind of, his hair changes a lot. It like, so now that you said that, like it, it really makes sense. Cause it, there, it, it just, seems just kind of like hacked to pieces and then reassembled and they probably realize oh well we don't have this and that so they put in the the pop-up book thing to lead you to one scene because it was it was kind of funny because they pretty much dropped the pop-up book device about halfway through once it finally i won't say find its footing but once it kind of just like drops all of the subplots and becomes what you came to see which is a a pup version of home alone in the you know the last half hour or so yeah yeah now now one area that i wanted to, to touch on that was i want to say it was it was i guess a bright spot or an interesting spot of the film is that we got a fair amount of dolphin this which i was not expecting i don't know what you thought going in if, if it was going to be like a short dolph roll or if we were going to get as much as we got yeah like i said it was interesting seeing who was on screen and who was just kind of like a voice actor and i did not expect dolph I, I kind of had the feeling he'd be the you know, villain character, but he's in nearly every scene, at least 70 percent of the movie. And, uh, you know, the, the one good scene, I, I won't say it's good, but <laughs> the, the, the most, you know, kind of kind of like where you see a little bit of what it could have been is the, the dinner party scene where he's really kissing up to Eric Roberts and he's just really kind of milking it to the hilt and. Eric Roberts is just basically kind of dismissive and they had, there's a chemistry there that uh, nobody else in the film has. It seems like everybody, whenever they're doing their scenes, they're just kind of like reciting the dialogue and just, you know, trying to, to get it all out. And, you know, and, but there's actually kind of like a, a repartee between uh, 
uh, him and Roberts, especially when he's kind of thinking he's going to have the promotion and uh, Roberts shoots him down. And I, I think my favorite part of the whole movie, one that I actually laughed was uh, there's just like a random dialogue scene with Eric Roberts. And then he just looks at the camera and says, let's get drunk. <laughs> and I couldn't tell if that was a line of dialogue or that was his coping mechanism <laughs> to finish filming the movie. <laughs> right. Well, because yeah, yeah, it's great because that comes like almost immediately after he he breaks the news to Dolph that um uh, that he's yeah because what he says he's going to step down as CEO and he wants somebody else to take his place and and of course the funny thing is that he wants he wants this guy Robert to take his place who again just started with the company. And and nobody really it's, it's like this idea that everybody seems to know him and we don't really understand why they think all these great things about him. But uh, but yeah, Eric Roberts is just like, yeah, let's let's get drunk. And of course, in true Eric Roberts fashion, right, he's only in essentially like this one set in this lodge in Big Bear. He's like, I think, in one room or another. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, there's, and, and then even then it's like, oh, let's let's do he wants to do like some kind of game night thing where people are like playing like board games and ping pong and stuff like that and it's like a montage of music and Dolph's character like chest bumping people and being overly competitive and obnoxious and it's like on the one hand it's fun to see Dolph doing that kind of thing but on the other hand it's like did we need any of that in the movie like did it further anybody's character arc at all um was it you know, w w did, did it do anything that we did that if, if that movie if that scene wasn't in the movie would we have said man I don't know if I if I really got Dolph's motivation in this or something like that well they even spell it out on this t-shirt he's wearing a t-shirt that says sore loser right. and even my daughter looked at me and she's like was that really necessary I said <laughs> it was it necessary for him to put the uh, the 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 eye paint under his eye for connect four right i mean like you said like it's some other if it, if this was a movie just about like kind of corporate drama uh you know like ceo like you know or something like maybe that would have been funny but in a talking dog movie that's already kind of lacking in the talking dog department uh yeah that that scene needs to get cut right right we, again you're you're at a, a an hour and 46 minutes and again you know, I think people sometimes get a kick out of me, or not, maybe not even get a kick out of me. They, they maybe think it's it's old that I just am constantly banging this drum about run times. But I mean, this was a movie that the hour and forty seven felt like, like you said, it felt like Gone with the Wind territory. And you know, I mean, or at least very least, like The Irishman. I mean, The Irishman's the last movie that I did in multiple settings. You know, that wasn't like a situation where like I maybe started a movie late at night and fell asleep. You know, um, so you know, it 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 already had, was was long and. Then it's like, I mean, yeah, I don't know how many scenes were like this that either felt like they shouldn't have been in the movie or, again, just went on too long. Like, you know, Dolph helps them move in and he's just hang you're like, he's still there at their house. It's like he hasn't left yet. And he's like comes in from another room and starts talking again about this or that stuff. And it's like it was great seeing Dolph on screen so much. But then it's also like, why is this scene happening for so long? Yeah. And I can't really fault Dolph. For this, because, I mean, yeah. he rarely has an opportunity like this to kind of just kind of play this goofy, like, grading character. And, you know, he he takes full advantage of it. But, like, at the same time, like, you know, that there's got to be uh, a middle ground here uh, where you get, like, maybe just one scene where he tries to sneak a peek at the, the the inventor's new invention instead of like three or four like in the same conversation and it's like okay we get the idea he's he, he's a, a a sneaky 
meddling uh, villain, but at the same time, you know, let's let's get to the talking dogs. <laughs> right, exactly. Because that's the other piece of it, too, is that the, with the talking dog situation, it was such an awkward construct with this whole, like, bullying piece of it where, like, like one of the first things that happens is when everybody goes to Big Bear, uh, um, Danny Trejo's bulldog uh, dog sends the other dogs into trash um, the, the house of, of Charlie. And, and that just seemed like, I don't know, it seemed like very obnoxious to see that. And then of course, of, I guess the woman who was like, because that's the other thing is they have this woman who's there, who's like, I guess, walking all of the dogs in the neighborhood for everybody while they're in Big Bear. And I guess she cleans the house or the dog cleans the house. I don't know who cleans the house after, but after it gets destroyed, it's suddenly cleaned again. Um, so there's a lot of things like that that happen in this movie that you're like, one, why did this need to happen? But two, like it seems to have no impact on on the rest of the film. And then there's the running joke between the the two mailmen that uh, always get attacked by Charlie, and it's like one of these scenes would have been funny, but there's like three of them, and <laughs> and it's like uh, like I said, like it felt like it was like two episodes of a of a TV show that didn't get picked up. <laughs> because there's there's these like subplots that are like eat up like 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time, but they go nowhere. And you could see that like these these bumbling mailman characters uh, being kind of set up for like a, a recurring role on a series or something. But they really have no impact on the plot except delivering packages and then getting like, you know, th there's not even like the scene where they get bit on the ass or anything. It's just, it, it's so tepid. They just kind of run away scared with a couple of scratch marks. You know, it's. Yeah. It, it, what You mentioned that about the reoccurring thing, because one idea that I kind of had about this movie in terms of like why certain people were involved with it is at the same time you had like the, that whole, I don't know if you, you know that the, that dog that saves Christmas series. Uh, that had, um, it, you know, um, I think it was voiced, uh, the dog was voiced by Mario Lopez in one part and then um, Joey Lawrence in another. But it was like one of those deals where like the movie came out, it had um, uh, Gary Valentine, he's, he's um, uh, Kevin, um, oh no, I'm losing, I'm, I'm having trouble now, Kevin James's brother. Um, so he's like a poor man's Kevin James, um, Gary Valentine. And then it had like for, for the villains, it had Dean Kane and, um, this guy who was like a, a poor man's big pussy. Um, uh, I think his name is like Joey Diaz, but it ended up being like the, the biggest rated TV movie of the year when it came out. I think it was like 2009 when it came out and it spawned like five or six sequels and, and each sequel is like more mailed in than the first one. Um, and so my wife and I found out about the series because we watched one called uh, The Dog Who Saved Halloween. It had like Lance Hendrickson. It was essentially a ripoff of The Burbs um, where Lance Hendrickson is living next door and he creates a haunted house, but everybody thinks he's murdering people in his house. And so Gary Valentine is, of course, doing the, the Tom Hanks thing where he's trying to sneak in and find out what's going on. Um, and then he we found out that, that Dean Cain and, and Joey Diaz are these these bumbling um uh, bumbling uh, burglars who have kind of made it through each movie. He hires them to go in and help him break in to find out what's going on. And then we discovered it was a whole series. I guess that's kind of a roundabout way of me saying, I wonder if the people involved with this movie thought same thing, that this could take off and be a series, especially when they were shooting it in 2017, where the the dog who saved whatever movies were, I think they were just kind of hitting their end, but they had, they had been made for enough time that, yeah, maybe everybody ball thought, hey, you know, th this could be like three or four movies that we could be signing on for. Yeah, I mean, the title alone just kind of like 
you know, th- there are worse Christmas movie titles out there. And it tells you everything that you need to know about the movie. Uh, like you said, there's what, like like the nine cats at Christmas. It's like they couldn't afford three more cats to make it 12 cats at Christmas. But, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like okay, the, the title was there, the idea was there, but the execution is just a mess. Yeah. Yeah, and I think probably the first place, at least, that I could see where the, the execution is bad is in the, the humor. Um, it felt like like every joke. I, I don't know. Like you said, I think the only one that really landed was the the, the Eric Roberts. Let's get drunk. Like I, I don't know if any of them. Land, I mean, I mean, seeing Dolph in some funny outfits was great. Seeing him dressed up like Santa was funny. But in terms of the actual jokes themselves, it, it whether you were an adult or you're a kid, I don't know that they they would work for either uh, demographic. Yeah, I'm, and I mean, like the conceit of having everybody be an inventor. Well, that kind of was like a necessity, yeah. because how else are the dogs going to rig up these like Rube Goldberg booby uh, <laughs> traps, right? That so the inventions are already there right. uh, in the houses. So like they would just convert like the taco maker into like a laser shooter or something, it, like you know that or like. But in some of it, it's just like scene for scene. Home Alone, like the bowling ball and right. uh, stuff falling, you know, off, you, you know, down the stairs. And it, and like, it, I mean, the, the movie is so cheap at one point when they, the, the dogs knock the, the marbles across the floor for Nicholas Tatura to fall on. It's only like six marbles. Mm-hmm. He has to like, he, he's very, he's, he tries to sell it. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that, that he just fell because like he's he was probably like there's no way I'm really falling on all these marbles but when you look at the scene like you know and it's it's just like six marbles and he just kind of awkwardly falls to the ground it's like oh uh, yeah that's not a, a very good uh splat uh slapstick performance no and then of course like you get the scene where the two of them when they first for whatever reason I don't understand why they even did this maybe I missed a, a line of dialogue that explained why they were doing this but when they're first getting ready to break into the houses towards the end of the movie, for some reason, the bumbling one sticks his head through the dog door and this old like um, beagle uh, just farts on him. And and they did this huge joke about how horrible it smells that the dog's farting on him. And oh, my God, I can't handle it. And then Nicholas Toro does the exact same thing, puts his head in there and he's kind of making these faces with his head sticking through a dog door about how how disgusting it is that this dog's farting on him. And there's got to be a part of me that's wondering, like, while he's acting that scene, is he in his head, like, figuring out how, you know, the, the conversation about where he fires his agent, um, as he's <laughs> acting that out? Like, I mean, is it really the promise of being in a series? Is that what it is? Like, he's thinking, like, OK, I'm going to sit through this because this is going to get me three pictures that three paydays that, that, that I could use. And another kind of odd kind of thing about the movie is the relationship between Nicholas Taturo and the other guy. It's like a might of of mice and men kind of thing happening where he is obviously mentally impaired and he's just being kind of pushed around and like kind of used by him. And it's like, is that trope still kind of like viable and like uh, kind of like this time, and yet in this day and age, uh, having you know, kind of like a, a, a mentally impaired kind of, not even a gentle giant, but like yeah, you, you know, that kind of character, and just kind of making them prone to 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 
being uh, mercilessly like uh, an object of violence and stuff, <laughs> having bowling balls smashed on their skulls. It was it, it was a very kind of like I was like, gosh, I can't even. And I was trying to think. I was like, when have I seen that you know that Lenny type character in a movie? And I was like, I have not seen that. It's such probably the the Gary Sinise. John Malkovich one, like you know, thirty years ago. I'm like, hmm, there's probably a reason why we don't use this trope anymore, right? Because I think the, in that 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 dog who saved Christmas series, um, the Joey Diaz character is is partially that, but he's not quite at the level that this guy was. Like again, this guy is is delivered in such a clunky, like poorly, I don't know, like heavy handed way that like you're right, like it's. It's it's a throwback to kind of like an '80s kind of sensibility that, like nowadays, you just you wouldn't. It, it, you're right, it doesn't work. Like you've got to do it in a little bit better way, where either the character has a little bit more agency or a little bit more going for them. And and yeah, it was it was just it was it was like they were trying to do the whole oh would you stop kind of thing because the guy's doing something goofy, but. They could never quite – like you said, it was like it was It was more like, you know, like he should be helping this guy as opposed to like getting angry with him all the time. Yeah, and it was – it, it, it was just weird because like – okay, like I said, the, there's a bare bones idea for what could have been a, just a perfectly acceptable kid's Christmas movie. But like the like you said, like the things like sticking their head in the doggy door or there's a really long scene where they're like, where's that sound coming from? And they look directly into a water pipe and there's like this 10 minute, like not 10 minute, but like it's it's like 30 seconds until finally the water comes crashing down on them. Or like when they put the cherry bomb in the toilet and they keep looking and looking and looking and then finally the water explodes in their face. And I'm like. At least, you know, in the Home Alone movies and the Home Alone ripoffs, there's some sense of pay, you know, set up payoff and not just kind of like fumbling around waiting for something to blow up in your face. Yeah, because that's a good point, right? That when in movie time, right, like these these um, digressions felt like 10 to 15 minutes of movie time when one, you know what's going to happen. And I mean, like the water one is a really great example because so you get Malcolm McDowell's character who turns on some water faucet somewhere, which we don't even know where it's connected to this other faucet that's outside. And we don't even know why this faucet's outside and why it's aimed like so like it would, would be aimed at two people standing in the doorway the way it was. But then it's like when the water goes through, it's like the two, you know, our two bumbling thieves, instead of just like getting out of the way and be like, oh, man, I'm soaked. They're like screaming and yelling and acting like they're like in like it's, it's like being doused in acid or something like that. When it's just water. Uh, so that kind of made no sense. And then, like you said, the cherry bomb thing, that cherry bomb is floating in the toilet for like a, a measurable amount of time. First with with the the, the the bumbling character, and then when Nicholas Turturro comes in, it's like another feels like another five to ten minutes of them watching this thing, and then and it's like we know it's going to explode. We know that toilet water is going to go flying up in the air and hit people in the face. Let's just get to it. Let's just do it. Uh, but th- but they couldn't for whatever reason they couldn't just do it. And I don't know too if you know going back to like the whole uh, kind of selling it for television angle if that. 146 minute running time if that's the the exact running time you need to put in commercials for a two-hour time slot 
you know, it's like it's like, did they have to kind of pad this thing out in order to sell it to Hallmark or Freeform or whoever? You, you know, it, it it seemed like uh, like it it was out of necessity. I would I would think it was out of necessity because why would you make a hundred six minute talking dog movie? Uh, it's just, I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with. No, because actually, in those, it's ninety minutes is actually the number because. For for an hour of TV time now, it's like forty three minutes is is what you need for an hour. That, that's how much that's how much we have uh, commercials in these shows now, and so actually like eight, ninety minutes is is good because eighty six for the movie, right? And then the credits go flying through while they're pick you know showing footage of the Starting next movie, next one, right? Yeah. Exactly. So actually, this is long for TV too. Like if if they were going to put this on TV, they would have had to cut it. Um, they would have had to probably chop off a good, you know, um, 20 minutes or so to get it there. So this 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 was definitely not even with t- with 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 um, with TV in mind. I guess it was meant strictly for the the streaming um, thing. But but the thing with the streaming thing, right, is that it, it the Roku channel is the only one I think that has it available to stream for free. The rest of them are paid. And I think anybody that paid for this, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I I'm always one of those people that likes to support indie stuff and. When I heard Alex Merkin on the um, on the, the I Must Break This podcast last year talking about the film, I was like, yeah, you know, putting in some money and, and supporting indie is a good idea. But, you know, after having seen this, I, I don't know how I would have felt, if, especially if I'd paid the $6 new release fee for this. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I love Dolph movies, but uh, being a Dolph completist, I don't know if it's, if it's worth that much. Yeah, I mean, that... You know, like I say, if you're under six, like I can see watching a talking dog Christmas movie Uh, for guys like you and me that have to watch every Dolph, uh, (laughs) Eric Roberts, Danny Trejo movie. uh, This is like the the kind where you just kind of, uh, you know, lean in and you take the high fastball to the to the head and, you know, pray that, you know, you're able to to, uh, play tomorrow's game. But I mean, I don't know if I could say this was the worst movie of of theirs, but it's definitely in the top two or three. I think for Dolph, I think like the the final inquiry might be the the toughest sit that I that for me. But like that's the only one I could think of. But it I, like I said, like you know, it, it was nice seeing him in just an an atypical role. But yeah. I mean, honestly, that that was about as nice as I can get on this one. Yeah, because right, because it's it's the novelty of Dolph, like you said, playing the Richard Kind character. Which what I liked about the way he played it was he took advantage of the fact that he is a big guy to play it as like the um the kind of like high school. I don't I don't think high school bully character is the right one. It's kind of like the high school, like the eighties sort of high school like. Big brother character, yeah, yeah, like the jock big brother character. Like if you had like, like like John Cusack in a movie, and then his brother is played by, I'm trying to think of an actor at that time who would have been like, you know, like a a few years older and bigger. Like I mean, maybe Sam Jones, right? Maybe Sam Jones looked young enough in the early '80s that he could, you know. But that that kind of guy, right? Who's who's just like putting him in headlocks and giving him noogies and and um, you know that kind of thing. I like that Dolph added that element to 
his character where he was just like kind of slapping that Robert character on the back a lot, you know, you know, putting his arm around him in a really rough way, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was it was a fun element to the Richard Kind character. And then also the fact that we see him in a Santa suit, we see him in like one piece Christmas pajamas, we see him in an ugly Christmas sweater. And even Rollers. like when he's in the ugly. Oh, go ahead. He was in. He had his hair in rollers because I think they were trying to explain why his hair was wavy in the next scene or something. <laughs> right, exactly. And and it's funny because Dolph's presence is such that even when you're putting him in those kinds of environments, there's still a sense that he's Dolph. Um, that like you know even when he's wearing like a, a, a you know like he takes the ugly Christmas sweater. And he makes it kind of cool, like almost like, yeah, I'd like to get that sweater and wear that sweater, which I thought would made that part of it fun. It's just like it's packaged in this movie. It's wrapped up in this movie that um, it's almost like, yeah, as a Dolph completist, is it worth it to go through all that just to witness those moments? And then there's the the, the really strange scene at the end where he's – I don't want to spoil it for everybody. I'm – Pretty sure you could guess that Dolph gets his comeuppance at the end. But uh, when uh, he's chasing after our hero dog, Charlie, and one of the uh, traps that the that the dogs have set is like kind of like this. They don't even I, I don't think they even set it up earlier in the movie, but there's like a dog car wash where the dogs go through this tube and it washes and dries them. And so he's chasing after the dog and the dog goes through the car wash, which is just like this tube in somebody's yard. All <laughs> Dolph had to do is run around the tube and catch him on the other side. But no, Dolph like crawls through this tube that he can barely fit in. And of course he gets, you know, soaked with water and then he gets caught in the tube. And I'm just like, like, like you said, it was like one of those, uh, was this the scene where they like immediately got on the phone with their agent kind of <laughs> scene? And it's just, it's like, I know it's a kid's movie, but at the same time, it was like, why is he doing, why is he crawling through <laughs> this too? Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to mention, cause you know, with it being a kid's movie, I, um, I, I kind of wanted to get like a different take on it just to kind of see, cause I, I know obviously in your case, you, you, you watched it with your daughter, which, which, which was good too. Um, so I was looking at the external reviews, and um, this um, a, a website, Parent Previews, reviewed it. Um, a woman named Savannah Lee did the, the 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 review, and her, of course, her tag for it was "Nothing can save this dog of a film." Um, but when we get to the actual kid part, because she mentioned she had a five year old, she said, "My five year old spent the the whole runtime jumping on the couch, leaving the room to find toys to play with, and just generally being uninterested." Um, for a film to not even be able to hold his attention is a feat unto itself. Um, so. So that tells you that, like, you know, we're looking at it as adults saying, like, oh, you know, this isn't working for us. But then we're saying, okay, maybe five or six years old, that might do the trick. But this woman's saying, you know, my five-year-old couldn't handle it. Um, so, um, yeah, she she said her she said she she kind of went a little bit more in than we did on it. Like, we're we're, we're kind of giving this movie the business, but she she went in much more saying she's going to talk to her lawyer um, to demand compensation for her emotional distress <laughs> from watching the film. Well, it's. And, you know, it, it, and one thing, when you look at some of the the good talking dog movies like like Homeward Bound or yeah. uh, Incredible Journey, uh, the human element is usually secondary. Yeah. And the, the, the picture, it, you know, the, the way they capture the the the, the dogs and, and the, the animals on film, it's almost like a uh, like a, a dog food commercial. 
it's very kind of like, like every scene, like the dogs are kind of like primmed and, you know, they, they look like, you know, they, like they've been had a lot of uh, time uh, spent on the, their hair and uh, uh, grooming and everything. And then like when you see like Robert Hayes and something, you know, he comes in and is like, oh, what are you, what's going on here? You know, it's <laughs> it's kind of like an afterthought. And like, I mean, I, I'm a dog lover, but the, the dogs that were in this film were not very photogenic. Uh, I, 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 they can't help that. But I but, it, you know, it, it, they didn't even take the, the time and care to kind of present the dogs as kind of like it. In, in a fashion for like a four or five year old to be like, oh look, cute dogs, you know. It, it, the movie even fails on on that level. Yeah, because it should be right. You when when a kid is watching a movie, like even as an adult, like like um like Charlie, I liked Charlie as a dog. Um, even like you said, he was a little bit a little bit even he was a little bit haggard. But I I always got a kick out of him like when he'd be looking out the window and he'd have his paws on the windowsill, standing on his hind legs. Um. You know that kind of thing is always kind of just always going to tug at the heartstrings for me when it comes to a dog um, doing doing that kind of stuff. But you're right, like for for kids watching a, a movie with dogs, right? They, their mind should should be like, oh, I want these dogs. I want I want to, like all of these animals to live with us. And I don't think these are the kind of dogs that people are going to look at. It's, it's more like it's not like the like like if these dogs were were being walked on the street, that you know kids aren't going to run up and be like, oh, I want to pet the dog and all of that stuff. And um, you're right. Like for a movie in real life, you know, every dog deserves a home. Every dog should be loved, and and whether they're photogenic or, or not, that shouldn't matter. But in a movie, it's it, it they should be made presentable. You're right about that, and and it's almost like I don't know if they wanted an idea of them being a ragtag group, but but even that just didn't come through enough. Well, I mean, when you look at like you know Rin Tin Tin and uh, Petey from the Little Rascals, they're always kind of like you know these down and out street dogs or whatever but they're always like they look like they belonged in a movie like you know that they, they, they had like a little bit of dust or something on them but yes they you know they all they would have to do is wash them in the next scene they look like you know something from the uh uh westminster dog show uh you know so it's it like and they didn't really even do like tricks or anything they weren't like at least like in like the air bud movies or even like the you know they they can at least perform like tricks and i think the only thing that they could really do was kind of put their paw on their nose to be like oh like i did you know i, I made a poo poo or something right. there was like there was like they just kind of sit there they kind of looked lethargic they didn't like really kind of like uh, like like even like going into like something as bad as like the film show dogs those dogs i mean as re reprehensible as a lot of that uh was <laughs> Uh, yeah, like the the dogs look like no, like 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 a dog you would see in the movie, and this just looked like like a almost like a shot on video kind of cast of dogs. Like you know, it was very you know they spent all their money on Dolph and Keith David and Eric Roberts, and like <laughs> these were the dogs that they you know that they could afford. Yeah, and and I do wonder, like you know, so I'm, I'm trying to think where. Um, so this was shot in Los Angeles, which, I mean, L.A., maybe that's part of the problem, right, is that if you're shot in Los Angeles, a good dog groomer in L.A. can charge a lot of money, and so they couldn't afford. Maybe if they had shot this in, in you know, outside of the L.A. area, maybe if they shot it in Vegas. I don't know. I don't know, like, where the, you know, if they shot it in Georgia, where, where things are cheaper, you know, um, or Michigan. 
maybe that was part of it is getting a good dog groomer. But, you know, again, going back to that, that dog who saved Christmas series of films, um, you know, they have a nice like, like golden Labrador dog that's in there. And, and it's kind of that way that like, even, you know, in the scene where there's in the very first scene of the movie of that movie, they, they, um, Gary Valentine picks up the dog at this, essentially it's like a prison that's supposed to be a kennel. And it's a really kind of dark and dour thing that I thought for kids it was a little bit too much. But even there, the dogs are supposed to look ragtag. I mean, even the, the, the main character dog, um, they kind of make a joke that he's like living on the streets and then he turns himself into the kennel so he can get his three square meals. Um, and then he gets, you know, he gets adopted. Whereas like, yeah, with this dog, I mean, I mean, the kind, I think that, um, that Charlie was a, a border collie, which those dogs are just naturally really cute. So it shouldn't take much to have a border collie look great on screen, but yeah, they, they managed to find a way to do it. And, you know, and I, I think too, there are, I think there are firms in, in Hollywood and stuff that that's all they do is provide dog, like trained dogs for shows and films and everything. And I don't know if they didn't want to pay those exorbitant prices to get the, the actual trained dogs or what it just, it, it just seemed like, uh, you know, just one of the many areas where, where this movie was lacking and, and, and just kind of like a fundamental basic, uh, movie about dogs like that would be the first box you would check before maybe getting uh you know adolf lundgren or something of course we wouldn't have watched it other than that but like like when i was watching i'm like god like there's at least like the scene where like they would either kind of jump up and pull the a string or something to to activate the uh uh the, the invention that trapped a criminal but usually it's just like them putting a, a paw on a uh, on, on a button that's already on the floor. So it's not even like they're doing performing this great feat of like, oh, you don't even get the sense that the, the dogs are really saving Christmas or whatever. They're just kind of like, oh, well, we've got these inventions. You know, if it wasn't for the inventions, they would have never stood a chance. Right, because there, there's this sense that they set this whole thing up, but we don't, see, that's the other part of the film, right? Is, it, is that I think, setting the whole thing up would have taken too much. But that was kind of one of the things about Home Alone, right, is that we get this quick, I mean, it wasn't a long montage in Home Alone where, where uh, Kevin is, is setting up all the booby traps for, for the, the, the crooks. And, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have taken, it was almost like one of those things where like, and, and also too, this, this reason why they got all the dogs together was that they were breaking into every house. Well, how did they know they were gonna break into the one house first? Um, like, you know, like how did it just work out that that was the house that they were gonna go to and that's where they needed to, to set everything up. So yeah, it was, you're, I think there was, I was expecting a bigger, I think like you said, we were expecting a bigger payoff from what the dogs were going to do when really all they were doing was just using inventions that this inventor guy had already created. Right. And it and like in the montage where they're kind of setting everything up, like the most of the time is uh, devoted to the one old dog eating chili so he can fart on them when they <laughs> enter the doggy door. And so it's like, uh, oh, and then there's like the long scene where uh, the the, uh, the 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 mentally challenged uh, robber gets on this like slowly turning pedestal and he manages to shrink wrap himself. And at some point in these movies, like, yes, okay. Like I, I buy the fact that he's going to run up the stairs, get hit by a bowling ball. And then the other guy's going to run up the stairs and get hit by another bowling ball. Right. You just, 
But at some point, you would notice that you're, oh my God, I'm being shrink wrapped, and I would step off of the pedestal. But he just continues to stand there until the saran wrap is, you know, completely covered him. And I'm like, and at some point, I started thinking about Death Wish Five when like the same scene <laughs> happened. I'm like, I'm like, God, if, if any movie needed like Charles Bronson here, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, because the other thing, right, is he gets wrapped up in the the saran wrap like that. But then it has absolutely no bearing on the next scene or two, right? Because not long after that, he's in the bathroom with the, with the cherry bomb, which they don't even explain why he put the cherry bomb in the toilet. Um, I don't even remember. He just throws a, a cherry bomb in there. And, and, but it's, it's almost like he's, he's wrapped in saran wrap, and it's this big thing to only be there for like five minutes of movie and then move on to this other thing. Yeah, and I mean, at, at some point, like, yes, yeah, so it was nice that Dolph was – stepping outside his uh, comfort zone, playing a different character. But would this movie have been better if he was kind of playing more of his typical character? Like if he was like the the Green Beret dog catcher or something, you know, the the, the puppisher or something, you know, he would have like, a you know, it, it's something that would have at least kind of, I, I don't know, just kind of kicked it up a notch or something. But like, to me, like, you know, like when the movie can't even, you know, deliver on its bare bones promise of <laughs> what it's claiming to uh, deliver on, then then it's 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 just a tough sit all the way through. Yeah. It, it, one of the things I noticed about this movie, too, that probably explained like the, the uneven jokes and all that was that, it, you know, it looks like it's got um three writers which you know i always think of the um what was it that the space mutiny joke on mst3k you know pass from screenwriter to screenwriter in a desperate attempt to save it <laughs> um, and and so you know again you think of that but when i looked at altitude altitude also had three different screenwriters and you know altitude is a movie when we were talking about that one where it's kind of more inspired um it's a very bare bones you know it takes place in one set pretty much but it was a kind of a really cool inspired concept where Dolph is sort of taking a back seat to Denise Richards and um, uh, Greer, Greer Grammer, um, Kelsey Grammer's daughter, as these two sort of almost like leads for the film. And so you get an action movie that's got two female leads and it was kind of a fun actioner that it, it, it was, it was uh, you know, an hour, 20 minutes long, 28 minutes long, so it had no wasted time. And so it's, it's also kind of fascinating to see that the, the same director can give us something like altitude that's inspired, that's concise, that's quick, but also action-packed with no real um, uh, lost time or, or you know uh, nowhere wasted time. And then something like Pups Alone, where almost none of the jokes land. Um, there is really nothing inspired about it, right? They're, they didn't do anything cute or different with the genre at all. It's really just derivative in, in every way, shape, and form. And it's long, and it's it's kind of drawn out and and not well edited it's fat you know i mean i guess it's one of those things right i mean it's like kevin smith can give us clerks and jersey girls right like it just you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah well i think altitude i think is one of those movies that's kind of like a more of a sum of its parts yeah there's kind of like this kind of x factor that kind of that you don't really count on that you know whether it's denise richards kind of like kind of relishing the the chance to, to have a be the female lead in an action movie or if it's just kind of the, 
a subtle variation on the cliches that we've seen in airplane action movies. Uh, you know, it's you know, you get a little uh, a spark here and there, and that can make the you know the the whole movie. Uh, and here, it just seemed like it like like it was just devoid of any kind of real uh, momentum. There was no urgency to anything. Uh, there were there were setups and no payoffs. There were payoffs with no setups, um, and it was just kind of like you said, maybe with having three writers, uh, you know, just you know, no, yeah, you know, nobody was kind of communicating on like, okay, uh, you know what, you know what the characters should be doing, where they should be going, where they're going to end up. It was just kind of like a free for all. Yeah, yeah, because it's. You know, it, it's you're just thinking about the way the movie ended, even where it's just like it's so kind of all over the place. And it wasn't even like, you know, joking. Another MST3K joke of the like, you know, you got to put on eye protection because all the loose ends are flying together. Um, this wasn't even like loose ends being tied together. It was like, and I'll, I'll kind of give people an idea of what happens at the end is um, Dolph and um, the, the the main character, um, uh uh, Robert and his his daughter and the the, uh, the woman that he's he's been sort of carousing with uh, Holly they all show up at the house and find um, Nicholas Totoro and um and the other guy the 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 um the Lenny actually I, I didn't even realize his name's Lenny um you're talking about oh, the uh, <laughs> yeah, right the, 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 the men his name's Lenny they find them there broken into the house and then Dolph acts like he doesn't know them and they keep you know bumbling around so they keep calling him boss they keep calling him by name and stuff like that. And so he like he punches them to knock them out so they won't keep complaining. And then the the invention, the invention that's supposed to uh, translate dogs um, speech, uh, it, it breaks. And then Dolph like kind of plays with it a bit and somehow puts it together. And then there's this whole long drawn out thing where like the main character is excited that he's finally made, made this thing work. And Dolph has got this big contract that he wants him to sign. And then. The daughter's like, no, don't sign this contract because you're giving him all the rights to everything. Um, and and then Dolph is like holding them, at, holding the dog at, um, I guess not gunpoint, but like tranquilizer gunpoint, um, which I didn't understand that either. If it's just a tranquilizer gun, why were they so worried about him shooting the dog with it? Um, but then, so they they you know sign the guy signs and and hey, and then these bad guys that we thought were not working with Dolph anymore because they weren't getting along. When Dolph chases the dog outside and goes through that whole cleaning contraption, the two baddies are tying up the the father, the daughter, and the the, the love interest in this sort of like comedic, like sort of screwball comedy bondage kind of thing that kind of made no sense either because it's like, why are they helping Dolph here? They should just be getting out and running away. But yet, no, they're helping him and you know tying them up or whatever. It, it was like all this stuff is happening where it's like, we could have just wrapped it up right there at the end, right? It could have just been Dolph is there. The, the, the two guys are there. They call the cops. The cops come and arrest them. End movie, good 15 minutes early. But they tacked on all this other stuff. And it was like, what is – and, and I, I, I was like I, – I even had trouble following it. Like, why are they doing all this? Like, why, why are we investing all this time and all this stuff when we didn't need it? And my daughter, she even picked up at the end where – they they tie everybody up and uh, at first the the daughter character has uh, duct tape on her mouth and then they cut the Dolph running around and then when they come back she's sitting there talking to the the guy she's and my daughter's like whoa, whoa didn't she just have duct tape on her mouth and I was like I thought so 
it was just like like you said if it was shot over a couple of uh months or years or whatever that's kind of feels like a scene that would have been added in be like oh we need to bulk up the finale let's just do do this scene and with them not really remembering that oh yeah like the other two guys should be probably hitting the road by now Right, right, because yeah, because also too, like the the dad, they like I pulled the tape off so we could talk and put it back on, but it always looked like it had been pulled off and taken back, put back on from the beginning. It never looked like you know. So there was that right. It was like the whole continuity with the scene was a mess too. I I was wondering with the with the daughter not having the tape, if like the scene that she was in without it was supposed to have happened before the scene where they're tying them up and they all have. Uh, tape on their mouths and they just messed it up or something but then that and they, and they never come back to it so i don't know yeah i don't know what was going on there i don't know it was it was just like it was just like why is this even in here um i don't i the only thing i could think Ooh. of between between that scene and like maybe the saran wraps or something like that is like i i always joked about when um the first uh one of the first van damme films i did um i can't remember the movie but it was one where he's like tied up and hanging upside down with no shirt on and I was looking through the movie tags, and one of the tags was shirtless male bondage. And <laughs> so I was wondering if, like, they're just throwing stuff like that in there so you just get, like, you know, because I don't know, like, if you know, people tied up or, bond, you know, or whatever, like, those are, like, tags. Of, none of those tags are in this at all, which um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if, like, there's, like, reasons for having these things tacked into the movies to kill, like, IMDb tags or something. But it was it was so tacked on. And then, like you said, there's the whole thing of Dolph chasing him through the – the, the thing and I wondered that one I think was was almost like directly for kids right this idea of him he's not going to go chase the dog out around this contraption he's going to go through it which I mean Dolph is a big guy and the idea and he, he's a big guy who's in his 60s and the idea of making him go through that I wonder if they had a, a stunt double or somebody go through and do that because that seemed like a lot of work for him yeah I mean and like another thing with the whole just kind of like you know, messy climaxes when they're tying up the family, we see, I, I, I think it's, it, it's a shot of somebody pulling their cell phone out and hitting the emergency <laughs> call button. Right. And that's how we're supposed to like know that the cops came, but later, like at the, the next to the last scene of the movie, it's when the inventor and his estranged father get back together. He's like, well, I'm the one who called the cops. It's like, no, but wait, the 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 inventor pulled his phone out while while he was tied up and it was it, like my daughter was like like she was like hold up she's like hands up and she's like wait a second. Right. Yeah. It was right. like what, what, now what really happened? And that seemed yeah. like that, that, yeah, that, that really kind of cements the idea of like, you know, there was nobody on the script level talking to one another here. Yeah, and even that piece of it cuz like she's I think it's the woman who does it, who who does the call. And it's like she has her hands behind her and she kind of slips her phone out from behind her while her hands are – so she can't even see what's going on at first. Well, we don't know if she could. Maybe she was able to look behind her and see what was happening. But I don't think I'd be able to get the – I've only had to do the emergency call button one time. It was uh, – I was getting my hair cut. I was waiting to get my hair cut and um, uh, there was a guy there who, who had a seizure suddenly. And um, it turned out he was waiting with his mom. Um, he had epilepsy. And so I called – I was the one who did the, the 911 call. And then by the time we got somebody on the phone, the mom had sort of – settled it down and sort of fixed it. So it's the only time I've ever had to use that call fu function, but I don't think I could be able to do it without looking. I don't think I'd be able to know right on my phone where it is. Yeah. I mean, it was like, 
even there, like that was a climax. It was like three or four climaxes <laughs> when one of one would have sufficed. Right. Yeah, and and the other thing too is at that point. See, that's the other thing too with these kinds of movies is that with the slider bar, you know how much you've got left, and there's almost a sense of like, man, I've got this much left, and. I, this feels like it should be over now, and I've still got another 15 minutes to go. What are they going to do with this other 15 minutes? Um, yeah, it's it, – it, 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 and, and again, I get like with Dolph like wanting to kind of go outside of himself and do something different. Like he he was a trooper. I, I give him credit for that. He was a trooper, but we didn't necessarily need all the things that he was a trooper in. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it's like one of those things where uh, – you know, you and me, we watch Dolph movies, you know, like, you know, we live for Dolph movies. And then it's just like, you know, I, I think and you know, and Eric Roberts is like this. Eric Roberts has made so many movies like I'm sure he's probably already forgotten that he's made this movie. Right. And I, it, there will come a time where you and I have forgotten that we've watched this movie, but it's not going to be any time soon. No, no. Well, because that's the thing with Dolph, right? Because I think. Yeah, I, I think be, between the two of us, I think I mean, I, a lot of times when I'll go into some of Dolph's back catalog to get movies I haven't reviewed yet. When I look in the IMDb uh, critic reviews, I'll see that, you know, Video Vacuum had covered that one. So I think we're, we're both in that category of we probably reviewed as many. I know for me, I'm like close to as many movies as Dolph has years on the planet that I've reviewed. I think um, he just turned uh, what did he just turn? Sixty six, I think. Um you're sort of 65, and I think I've got 64 of his movies reviewed on the site. So, um, yeah, so we, we've kind of done our, our, our work with Dolph, and there is a sense of, like, wanting to get as many of these Dolph movies in as possible. But, yeah, this one, it, it's funny you mentioned Final Inquiry because um, when I first was on Sean Malloy's podcast to talk Dolph movies, he asked me, he was like, I'm having trouble finding somebody for Final Inquiry. And I'm like, hey, I'll talk any Dolph any time. And I, so I, I did. I did Final Inquiry. And I I almost feel like I had an easier time talking about Final Inquiry than, than this movie. I mean, as in terms of a sit, it might have been just as bad, but I, I think it was like an easier one to discuss. I don't know how you feel. Well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I mean, they're both atypical roles uh, for Dolph. And I, I think, I, I, I think in Final Inquiry, his uh, presence alone was just kind of distracting because I was like a, a a biblical story, and it's the Punisher, <laughs> you know. So it's like this, like you said, like he was like gratuitously cast against type, and so it's like like you said with the Christmas sweaters and all, and then like you know when he's wearing like the uh, uh, you know the the toga or whatever in, in Final Inquiry, you're like mm, like I don't know about this, right, right. I mean, the other thing that I liked about Final Inquiry is that we had we had two Swedish acting legends, right? We had Dolph Lundgren and we had Max von Sydow. So, so there was like one element there we had, uh, which I, I don't know how many people consider Dolph to be a, a Swedish acting legend, but I I, I know <laughs> we do. But um, yeah, and I it's there was a sense when I was watching it of like, okay, I'm I'm doing so I'm watching. I, I think I was surprised by how much Dolph was in the movie. And and I kept like, kind of leaning on that as a positive, and then just like a bad joke would come in, or something would happen that I was like, why is this even in the movie? Um, that would would kind of make me sort of not feel as much fun about that part of it. Right, and if you kind of like as like another kind of comparison of how you know this could have worked, 
Uh, I mean, if you look at Kindergarten Cop 2, which had Dolph in it, that is better than any Kindergarten Cop 2 uh, really had to be or should have been or you know it like i it was kind of surprising it's not great but at for a directive to dvd sequel uh to an arnold schwarzenegger movie it was it was not bad it delivered what it promised and it there were parts of it that were actually kind of funny and it kind of uh it knew it it, it knew its role it, it stayed in its lane and it delivered a little bit more than it had to where this one it just just stumbled out of the gate and uh just never you know never really could uh make heads or tails about what it wanted to be yeah, and i think you make a great point because kindergarten cop 2 might be a really great comp for this as well because one it's it's also i, I just pulled it up on imdb it's also had three writers um so again you know something that needed to be pieced together it also was close in runtime it was a, it was an hour and 40 minutes so it was only six minutes shorter than, than the movie we're talking about here but it wasn't a multiple sit movie right like we you know i you could get through this one pretty you could get through kindergarten cop 2 pretty easily um like you said for a direct-to-video sequel for kinder for kindergarten cop it was it was better than it needed to be, right? Or it, it didn't have to be as good as it was. And it's not like it was like one of Dolph's best, but it, it also wasn't this movie where I'm just like, oh, like what is, you know, like, like even right. this one, like the jokes in Kindergarten Cop 2, there weren't as many jokes that fell flat, I, I think. And and they were kind of, you know, they were treading on similar territory in the sense of they wanted to make fun of the the, the school industry at that time. And some of the jokes were like, okay, let's make fun of the, the PC aspect of it, where it's like, okay, I've seen these jokes so many times before. But there's something about Dolph doing them that kind of worked in a way that Dolph doing jokes in this movie also worked, but the rest of the movie didn't. Right. And, you know, the, there's a difference between delivering like a, an obvious joke or like, a, you know, uh, but you still have to have the, the setup and, and, and the, the payoff and the punchline. And um, that takes like basic kind of filmmaking skill uh, to deliver something that's, you know, kind of competent. And this one, even though it was from the director of uh, Altitude, which was a, a, you know, movie we both enjoyed, it just didn't seem like that fundamental basic uh, ability of telling uh, a, a, a joke in movie form. Uh, it just wasn't there. And that's how you get scenes that go on too long or scenes that end abruptly or uh, just scenes of just kind of chaos that, that just don't really translate into laughs. Yeah. I mean, one scene that, you know, when talking about that point, one scene that I, I wanted to mention that really kind of struck me as just odd. And, and I didn't know why it was in the movie was the scene, the, the first scene where we get our bumbling crooks who are, Going door to door, I guess Nicholas Tatora is dressed like a priest, and they're going door to door acting like they're part of some charity for the blind. And they go into this blind elderly woman's house. And while Nicholas Tatora is talking to her, the bumbling thief, uh, uh, Lenny, is destroying the house and trying to steal everything. And it's almost like kind of like a Grinch that stole Christmas kind of thing, where he's just packing up everything in the house to steal it. And, but he's also breaking stuff. And she's like, What's going on there? What just broke? Oh, no, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And it's like, what is funny about robbing a blind elderly woman? Like, I just, I get that it was being played for last. I get to the movie. I wasn't supposed to be taking it that seriously. But I feel like there could have been goofier 
thefts that they could have done that weren't like robbing elderly blind women. I don't I don't know how that scene felt for you. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the whole uh, Lenny character. It, it seemed like a, a gag that was just out of its time and like, you know, uh, something you would see like on a, a Looney Tunes cartoon <laughs> in the 50s. Uh, and even then, it might have been just kind of, you know, borderline kind of like, OK, roll your eyes. Uh, but like you said, and I think there's a scene that in that scene, he drops or falls down uh, or makes a loud noise like seven or eight times when just one or two would have. We, we get the idea she's blind. She can't see what he's doing. But they just just went on forever. Yeah, it it felt like that thing. Like if you ever had like somebody in in in, in school or or somebody in, in you know like you you meet who's who's not really funny, but like they tell a joke and when it doesn't get the response that, that they want, they keep going with it. Or or maybe they tell a joke that maybe they they think is funny and they just keep doing it. This movie had that vibe to it with the humor, and I I think that's always a difficult thing when, when the jokes overstay their welcome. I guess that's another area where kindergarten cop did a better job of it, where kindergarten cop would make a joke about something like kindergarten cop too. I mean, they make a joke about, you know, sitting in the Lotus position, not being called sitting Indian style anymore. Right. And it's just one quick joke where Dolph tells the kids to sit Indian style, Bill Bellamy's in his ear piece, you know, trying to help him out and says, no, 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 we don't call it that anymore. You got to say, you know, I think, what, what did they say? Um, Cross cross applesauce or something like that. Chris or? Cross applesauce. Chris cross applesauce. That's what it was. They said that's what you got to tell the kids. And 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 so he does that and sits. That's it. That's the joke. Boom. That's it. Whereas I think if this movie was telling that same joke, it would be like probably like all kinds of stuff happening of like you know sitting Indian style. Kids saying, oh, you can't say that. Maybe um, you know <laughs> you get like the uh, the old uh, Native American um, from the commercial right with the the. the trash on the highway right with the the, the the one single tear dropping out like it would just be like all kinds of stuff thrown in and you just be like we get it right you, you can't say sitting indian style anymore Dolph's character doesn't understand that he's a guy from another time and he's they're trying to move him into the, the, the present um yeah this movie would have overdone that joke the way kindergarten cop just did it once and boom that's it it's the joke and it's done yeah and it like you know uh you know, the, the the director, he did a really good job on Altitude. And maybe comedy is not his forte or maybe, uh, you know, they they thought that, you know, just working him working with Dolph again would kind of maybe compensate for some of the scripts, uh, you know, uh, lackluster uh, comedic uh, timing there. But it, to me, it just it. it it's hard to say like it, it, it the bar was so low for this uh it, it's it's a dog related home alone ripoff it it, it it seemed to me that it could have been cleared and it like we could have you know been out here and say ah it's a cute movie two star movie i'd watch it if it was on uh free form or or uh you know uh hallmark but like it it just kind of became like i i think uh santa's summer home uh, or summer house was, was a lot uh kind of a, a smoother ride than this one uh it it's it just was just kind of like baffling how just bad it was 
Yeah, and you know, Santa's summer home is a good comp too, right? Because in Santa's summer home, we had that one scene that was sort of like the um the uh, the the Santa uh, or the holiday film equivalent to to rock climbing, right? Where we get um the the croquet playing scene that just went on forever. Uh, but there was just that one scene, and and it's definitely with someone like a David Dakota, they they know how to they they know what like if you gave David Dakota pups alone, he would know exactly what was expected out of him for Pups Alone. And he would deliver exactly the movie you were describing. You know, the the two star, watch it on Freeform, have a fun time with it kind of thing. And I think that's the problem here is I think this, this I think you said like the director here, he, he gave us more than we were expecting with Altitude, but I think he tried to give more than we were expecting with Pups Alone and it didn't work. Yeah, and you know, comedy and, and, horror they're kind of like you know you, you don't really need a strong story uh to for it to work you, you either the laughs are there the scares are there and you can overlook a few things you know uh storytelling wise or filmmaking wise like if it delivers on that that the basic promise and you know i i, I admit i'm you know, not the the target audience for this, but even like you said, uh, the the lady on the one review, like her her five year old son couldn't uh, ev- even even uh, focus on it. So when when you can't even capture that demographic, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, w- w- what is the demographic? Is it uh, zygotes? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, are they gonna watch it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's just, it, I like I said, I, I I've been trying not to use bad to describe movies, but man, this it was bad. <laughs> no, it, it it you you're right. I think it's I think you're right. Like we don't want to. It's like one of those things where like you know you look at the people who made. I'm maybe kind of going back to the Kevin Smith thing with Jersey Girls. I think he was interviewed about Jersey Girls, and he said, you know, when he was putting Jersey Girls together. He thought he had, I don't want to say a masterpiece, but they thought they had something really good. You know, they had an invested cast. They had a story that he thought was working. He said each time they were shooting scenes, everything looked like it was working. And then they get it up on screen and they watch it and realize like, wow, no, this 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 wasn't what we thought it was. And it was almost kind of like the anatomy of a bad movie, right? That like you go in with the best of intentions. It's almost like sort of like two versions of the bad movie, right? There's the going in with the best of intentions and having it not work out. And then there's the, you know, sort of the, Emmett Furla Productions sort of, you know, uh, assembly line Bruce Willis movie where it's just like, hey, we're just going to throw this thing together. And if it works, it does. And if it doesn't, hey, you, you streamed it anyway and you watched it. So, you know, that's 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 not our problem. Um, this I, it feels like they went in with the best of intentions. But I just I wonder, like, I just can't I can't fathom like. Nicholas, you know, uh, John Totoro. Um, Oh, Nicholas Totoro, sorry, I'm getting confused with uh, with John Turturro. Nicholas Totoro, heads in a doggy door, grimacing and making faces because he's acting like he's getting farted on. Like, how did they watch that scene and say, man, we got ourselves a winner here. Like, this is this is really <laughs> going to play well. Well, you know, I, I'm not going to say uh, there's a good movie lurking in here, but I, I think I know uh, – <laughs> When Phantom Menace came out, you know, they made the the Phantom edits where they edited all the Jar Jar scenes and it played like a tighter movie. I mean, I think anyone with, you know, basic uh, 
comprehension of uh, iMovie could probably deliver a 75 minute version of this movie and, and it would go down a lot smoother. I wouldn't say it would be good, but it would go down a lot smoother. And I, I think it really it's kind of like too. like I, I just watched Terrifier 2 and it's a slasher movie in the 80s kind of uh, uh, style, but like it's 138 minutes. There is no reason for a slasher movie to be 138 minutes. And there are some really good stuff in it. But like like you said, like when you look at the slider bar and you got a half an hour more than you bargained for, the director really needs to kind of deliver. And neither, you know, neither Terrifier 2 or, or Pups Alone really did that. And it's, it's just kind of, uh, you know... I look at all my all the movies that I have on my shelf right now that I haven't watched. I looked at all my the movies on my like Tubi account that I haven't watched. I'm like I could be watching, you know, two crappy Jim Wynorski movies or something like the, the like the sixty minute, uh, you, you know, full moon movies or something. When, when uh, like, you know, it, it takes up the. Two full moon movies just to equal one pups alone. I'm like, God, I, I could have really put a, a a dent in my Tubi account right now. Yeah, because no, that's a really great point. Because you know, the last time that you were on, we talked about the film Pig with um with Nicolas Cage, and that movie was like about an hour and a half. But in the trivia, it said the original runtime was two and a half hours, and the distributors wouldn't touch it at two and a half, so they cut it down. When you think of that movie at an hour and a half, it it did everything it needed to do, did it really well. There was no real down spot. And in, in fact, because it was almost like whenever there was a down moment, the down moment was really just sort of giving us a breather for the next tense moment. Um, and even sometimes I think with, with Pig, there were moments where we thought we were taking a break that we were actually, no, we were getting into something tense. And so it does get into that point that like, Movies, I don't know, it feels like movies always have to be bigger. Like a John Wick is another example where the first John Wick movie is like about 100 minutes long, something like that. And then the next one's two hours, two hours and two minutes, or something like that. And the next one's two hours and 10 minutes. And, you know, the first movie takes place almost exclusively in like small set locations that are supposed to be New York and New Jersey. The second one goes to Rome. And then the third one, he's like traipsing around the desert in Morocco and all of that stuff. And it's like, there's this feeling of like every movie's always got to be bigger than it than it really necessarily has to be. Well, if it, I mean, you look back at Fistful of Dollars uh, for a few dollars more than Good and Bad and the Ugly. Well, I mean, yeah, those movies grow exponentially, but they're worth it. They yeah. uh, they deliver, and uh, you know, like every time uh, you know I, I watch Good, the Bad, the Ugly, I I know it's three hours, but I know it. There's going to be no points where I'm looking at the uh, the display button on my DVD remote. I'm going to be watching that sucker. And Pups Alone, I, I think I first hit it like the 17-minute mark, and I honestly <laughs> thought I was like 40 minutes in. That's the same and thing and me and my daughter looked at each other. She's like, I got to go to bed. <laughs> like it's, It was putting her to sleep. And yeah. it's, it's just uh, – it's. Like, yeah, yes, filmmaking's hard. Filmmaking is the toughest thing to do. And, uh, you know, they say every movie is is a miracle. 
uh, just to get it uh, written, produced, uh, filmed, edited, and distributed. Having said that, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> yeah, it just right. It, it it they went in with the best intentions, and it just didn't work. I think it's it's you know, and and like you said, right? Like there's, I think that's that's always the thing. Like even with those those ones that feel like they're assembly line created, you know, productions with Bruce Willis in for like five minutes, like. There's still like a, a crew that that was putting in long hours, having to set things up and do shots and and all that stuff. So I I definitely agree with that concept that like you know like there's no you know there, neither of us are saying like all of the people who made this movie should be banned from the film industry and we we you know they should never do another thing in Hollywood or anything like that. You know we're saying this thing just didn't work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think for me it was like fifteen thirty or something like that was when I checked the slider bar, which, you know, I I I for me like I'm always checking the slider bar anyway because I'm I'm one of those people just antsy when it comes to movies. Like my brain is just permanently velocitized where I just have to watch PM Entertainment films all the time where they're just like <laughs> you know flipping cars every ten minutes or something like that. So so that's that's my issue I know, but I also know too that like for example, Kindergarten Cop two, maybe I'm checking the slider bar. But I also could, was able to sit and watch that in one sitting. Like I could, you know, it's almost the same long, you know, length of the movie. And I think again too, when when you were there watching with your daughter or you know the woman who who reviewed it for the other site, who um said her five year old was was playing with her with with his toys and things like that, it's a sign that you know it just it just didn't hit. It just didn't work. And I don't I don't know. I I, I think listening to the podcast where they talked about the kind of piecemeal way that this was created and almost like they were trying to say it was like a good thing that it was piecemeal because it was a sense of like this isn't a David Dakota thing where they just threw it together in a short period of time and cut corners because they had to or whatever. I almost feel like no, it might have been better if they just David Dakota it and just just spit it out and got it done. Well, even if they were working on a uh, television schedule and budget, you know, like, a, you know, shoot in 10 days, two weeks or whatever, you know, nine to five. Um, but I mean, and, and think about, about it like this too. I mean, we've all been, like you said, you, you watch the, um, Christmas movies is a, a guilty pleasure. And, you know, sometimes like if you're over at the relative's house or, you know, and they have uh hallmark on it, or, you know, you just happen to turn it on. There's a, you know, hallmark Christmas movie on and this happened maybe a few days ago. I just happened to turn on. Uh, I think Pluto and they were playing a Christmas movie and I did, I'm not saying I got sucked into the movie. I don't even know what movie it was, but it's something about the, 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 somebody bought in a small town theater was going to turn into a restaurant and everybody wanted in the town, wanted them to save the theater and all this, you know, but like, okay, like I, I can tell you right now what happened in that 10, 15 minutes when it was on in the background, because it was, concise and it like each scene led to the next one and it's like you could i i could watch 15 minutes of it but i could tell you what happened before that and what happened after that and how it probably ended uh, but there was a basic functionality to the, the 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 dialogue being delivered the sets the uh you know the placement the, the relationships of the characters in None of none of that really applied to Pups Alone. Pups Alone was just kind of a free for all uh, in terms of storytelling. 
Yeah, because here's the synopsis on IMDb. It's two sentences, this, this synopsis. While everyone is away on a company ski trip, Robert's neighbor hires two inept thieves to steal his latest invention. The neighborhood dogs will use Robert's inventions to set up a house of horror for the thieves. That's like the last, like, that's like... That's the last 30 minutes of the movie. Right, and it's only like 15 minutes of the last 30 minutes of the movie, too, right? Yeah. Like, like it's, it's just one small piece of this, of this movie is this synopsis. And, you know, like you said, like, you know, when you think about, like, there's that, that, that dog who saves Christmas movie. You know, I can tell you that synopsis really quickly. You know, it's just that, you know, family wants to adopt a dog um, because they, there's break-ins in the area, and so they, they want to have a guard dog. So they adopt a dog from the kennel, but the problem is the dog's afraid to bark because the dog used to be a, a rescue dog and he was there was a, a, a traumatic incident where he barked and, and got somebody killed. So he's afraid to bark. So anyway, the family decides they're going to rehome the dog. But before they do, they go out um, to, to visit in-laws. Um, and while they're doing that, robbers break in and the dog finally gets his voice and saves the day. That's it. There's the story right there. I wasn't able to do that with this movie, and I still don't think I even covered everything when I was doing my synopsis. Well, another thing too is, I mean, it, it, it again, it goes back to almost like the storytelling device of like the uh, from the fifties and sixties. We have the widowed dad, <laughs> and the only really reason he's widowed is so that the hot neighbor can virtually throw herself at him (laughs) because he's obviously the only available male in this gated community of dog technology and vendors. (laughs) And it's almost, I I don't want to say offensive, but it's like insulting to your intelligence that one, he has a daughter. So you're, I know it's a movie, but you're going to like thrust all this trauma of losing your, your mother just so your dad can score and he's not going to even score because it's a, it's, it's a kid's movie. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, uh, it's this storytelling device. It's just outdated. It's like, uh, at least have them to be divorced or something. And it's still kind of traumatic, but it's not like, Oh, your, your mother's dead. And like, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm out of line with that, but it just it just kind of is like it's it's kind of insulting. And that's like the first scene of the movie. Yeah. And he's definitely no like Fred McMurray or anybody like oh, that. No. Right. He's not. He's, but you're right. It's like it's it's a very like you said, it's a, it's a traumatic thing. And it's also like the way that like I, I guess they were using it as a device to show why he cared so much about this dog um, translating device that he was because they were working on it together when the wife passed. But it's like. The idea of a dog translating device in and of itself is big enough that he could be obsessed with it without it having to be tied to the to the to the late wife. Um, I agree with you there. I think, and I think there was a there was a missed opportunity here too to make it even better if there was an ex-wife, right? That 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 maybe the ex-wife is like, you know what, Robert, you just were so obsessed with your inventions that I couldn't be with you anymore. And so now he finds the perfect woman in the neighbor who is also an inventor, right? So she's going to share that um, that thing. But but like you said, you're right. That was so gratuitous too. That it's like you know she's she's walking her dog in cocktail dresses. Like like 
what woman walks their dog in a cocktail dress? Like, unless it's like some kind of a absurd concept, like, um, again, in that, that dog who saves Halloween movie, they had Kristen Miller, um, from she spies. She is supposed to be playing like the town Hutsey character. And so she walks her dog in cocktail dresses and it's supposed to be played for laughs, but this was dead serious. Like this is, you know, yeah, this woman's gonna, you know, she's putting on a dress to, to walk the dog. Um, when everybody else would do it, like in, in, leggings or sweatpants or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it was a very heavy-handed concept that I think they, they there was, yeah, it, 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 you're right. It was, it was kind of a throwback concept to like those old movies that, would, like, that didn't really need to be there. Yeah, and, and it, I guess really what matter if the, the, I can't even say that the inventor character is one note. It's almost like a half a note. <laughs> right, yes. it, I mean, because all he he's just so caught up in his work, like his daughter, it's, it's doing the like, you know, we've said this a thousand times uh, in this discussion, but like there's five or six jokes or five or six uh, lines when only one would suffice. There's like the mm-hmm. opening scene where she's getting herself ready and he keeps fiddling with this dog collar and she keeps saying stuff that you know it's just like these non sequiturs and he's like "Uh uh-huh great you know and it's it just goes on forever and it's like he is it's just and even when he's somewhat redeemed like at the end he's he just seems more of like a plot device than than an actual character that we're supposed to kind of uh, it, it doesn't even feel like he's the main ca- it feels like in the beginning he's going to be the main character but then he really isn't and then the dogs I don't know like the whole thing it just makes my head spin yeah because there wasn't there wasn't really any reason why the two of them why, why she would go over there and be interested in him immediately like yeah there's there's no like even situation where like she shows up at the house and they strike up a conversation and realize they have things in common or he takes off his glasses and looks really debonair. There was none of that. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to, to um, Santa's summer house where you had the, the relationship between um, Daniel Bernhard and um, I can't remember the, the, the actress's name that was in that. But but, you know, there's a, there's sort of like a, a tension between the two of them. Right. Where they kind of almost like a romantic comedy kind of thing. Right. Where they they don't get along, but they kind of have a thing for each other and attract. Yeah, exactly. And they kind of build into something that at the end, it doesn't even like get fully formed where like kind of at the end, it's like it could get in, you know, could move into something, right? It could be something between the two of them. And, and it, but it definitely felt much more organic than this did, where this was just like, it was like a victim of the editing, I guess, but it was just like, why would she be interested in him? Like, like they could have even made a joke where she makes it, you know, like, where maybe she's she's desperate or something like that, right? Like, like there's just there's not a lot of single guys around, and, and it's either between her and Dolph, and Dolph's so obnoxious she doesn't want to be with him. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's just like immediately he he shows up and she like almost throws herself at him. <laughs> I think she actually does. I think she like runs into him while he's carrying a box or something. And <laughs> I mean. I, you know, it's you know, I, I don't know what it's like to live in a gated community full of uh, dog tech inventors. So I, I, I really don't know how, you know, those emotions can, you know, overcome someone. But <laughs> I do. I, you know, I've known some women in my time and I, I don't think they just automatically literally throw themselves at. It. And if they do, I mean, I, I I've been hanging out in the wrong gated communities. Apparently. Right. 
Yeah, because and, and the, it's almost like the myth of what people think L.A. is, right? That you would see people right. dressed like that going to walk their dogs, and 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 yeah, it's almost it was almost like it had like a Melrose Place kind of quality to it, where it's like a Heather Lockley or going to like flirt with with uh, with Jack Wagner or something like that. Um, yeah, it 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 was so out, and it was again, it's like they're spending so much time on so many of these other elements of the film that they do almost nothing to to build the romance between the two of them. You know, like it could have been that like she just shows up and maybe she likes the daughter, right? Maybe she 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 has an affinity for the daughter. Maybe her and the daughter hit it off. And and they kind of went through some of those things but never quite enough. But it's like there were scenes where again, the scene where they're robbing the blind woman could have been 5 minutes shorter and then maybe you've got a scene where they're you know, maybe the the main character is on a date at Keith David's bar with uh with you know, with the, with the woman and maybe, you know, Keith David could be like kind of sparking the romance between them, you know, um, you know, that, that, that could have been something funny. You know, maybe Keith David puts on music for them or something like that. Like there, there were elements there that could have maybe made this so not so completely out of left field, but they were spending time with so many other things that they didn't have to. Yeah. And I mean, like uh, the bartender scene, uh, you know, it's more, he's, crying the blues to the bartender because he he made his daughter upset with him and it's like you either needed the daughter character to i mean that's that was the only source of tension in the movie was between him and the daughter yeah but at the same time there was no tension between him and the love interest you all you pretty much knew that wherever you know he showed up she was going to be and kind of like falling over him and it's it's just like they're needed either one or the other like you know do do the uh winning your daughter back subplot or do the finding new love subplot and like like kind of going back to what i said it's like it almost it felt like two episodes of a show where there are these plot threads that start and then go nowhere and then are and then there are new plot threads in the second half of the movie and then go nowhere yeah, because you make a great point about that, too, because, right, like in a, in a traditional Christmas movie, the those were the, would have been the two main strains, right? It would have been this main character who, of course, he would have been much more debonair than this guy is, right? It would have been, you know, maybe not played by, by a Brandon Ruth, but maybe like some, you know, lantern-jawed uh, uh, young Canadian actor, right, would have probably played the the, the, the the love interest instead of this guy that they got for it. Um, I think the actress that they got, though, um, I, 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 her name is um, Sarah Lindsay. I feel like I've seen her in stuff before, but I when I looked at her IMDb bio, it was nothing that I'd, I'd, I'd caught. Um, so, um, but but she probably would have played the, 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 the female lead. And then the daughter, of course, right? And there's almost like this sense. I, I think there have been ones like this before where the guy isn't a widower, that he's, you know, been divorced and he finds love with a new woman when he's got kids that they could have probably played into some. But it's almost like they, they were trying to split the difference between the Christmas movie romance and the Christmas movie Home Alone heist kind of thing. And they ended up getting neither of them. Right. And, and it goes back to just kind of... Uh just like a basic uh, scene by scene setup. Like, you know, these movies uh, are meant to be kind of disposable entertainment, right. but they need to function. Uh, you know, er every scene needs to kind of build upon the next one. Uh, and like I said, like the, the random, 
uh, Hallmark movies that you can just stumble onto. You can only watch five or six minutes of them, but you know you get a general idea. If I watched uh, any kind of given six, seven minutes of this movie, I wouldn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and even to that point, it's like, yeah, you don't know what's going on. And then also, like, again, some of these scenes are so haphazard. Again, even the, the your basic Lifetime Hallmark Christmas movie they're going to have scenes that aren't helter skelter where people are talking over each other. Like there's at right. least a, a sense that like, okay, Dolph Lundgren talks when he's done talking, Nicholas Totoro talks when Nicholas, Tutoro, you know, and, and we couldn't even get that. I mean, there were, there were moments where the daughter is talking over the, the father and the, you know, they're talking over each other the, or Sarah, you know, even that basic element of filmmaking, I think you get in those Hallmark movies that you weren't getting here. Right. And I think, like I said, I, I, I think there's a uh, when they do those movies, they're working on basically more of a television budget, yeah. nine to five, five days a week, you know, two weeks. They shoot the they probably shoot out the the main star who's the guest star or whatever the first few days and then they work around and then they probably have a second unit. It does all the shots of the, the, the snow coming down and. The, the the Christmas lights and you didn't you didn't get any of it. You never got a sense that it was really Christmas either. <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, like so I, I, I don't I mean other than Dolph's uh, sweaters and I guess the, the Big Bear Lodge, but like in the cul-de-sac where they live, I know it was LA, but it, it still didn't feel like it was uh, very Christmassy at all. And it, it just it, it seems like, you know, like you said, the piecemeal way it was put together uh, probably was a hindrance because there wasn't a, any sort of immediacy uh, to the editing and there wasn't kind of like any kind of urgency to the plot. Yeah, it was it was just a lot of stuff that was just sort of like, oh, by the way, or let's throw this in here. Right. Like, OK, the the father, daughter and, and the dog move into the new location. Oh, by the way, here's Sarah Lindsay walking her dog and getting, you know, introducing him. And here's Dolphin. Oh, by the way, there's this company event in Big Bear that nobody told you about, but we're going. And like, you know, oh, by the way, we've got someone in the neighborhood who, who walks all the dogs for us. So you don't have to worry about your dog. Um, it it was a lot of these things that just sort of, you know, happened. Um, and I think that was that was part of it, too, is that none of it flowed organically like you'd want it. Like that even a, a Hallmark movie. That, like you said, it's like a two star, you know, time waster. At least it, it, for the most part, even like Santa's Summer House, it, for the most part, it flowed organically. There were some things that were in there that, that maybe shouldn't have been. There were some, some fights between couples that maybe were a little contrived. But overall, I think it, it flowed enough that it worked. And, and this didn't flow enough to work. Yeah. And then, like, with the, the pop up, kind of device i thought i was like oh well that's kind of a i guess a, a cutesy idea or whatever and then um like i said they just kind of drop it at the end and then there's like the big reveal that the dog has been the one telling the whole story but like I, there's a good 40 minutes where there isn't a uh pop-up book montage and the you know and they occur really kind of like every few minutes or so in in the first half of the film so it it just seemed like they used that to kind of tie everything together where maybe they didn't get around the filming or uh you know 
shots didn't come back from the lab on time or something. I don't know, but it's just it just seemed haphazard. Yeah, and some of those were longer too than they should have been, right? It was like, you know, telling this whole story about the the father and the mother and the mother dying and then the, the mother the, the father getting into a fight with the grandfather and, and them not getting along, which was a contrived piece that I don't think you even needed there to be in there. And and the other thing I didn't get too is that they moved away to this other location, but yet the grandfather just happened to be in that location. Um, the, wouldn't they have been moving away from him too? Um, so there were a lot of these things that just didn't make any sense. But then, like they were, like you said, they were using this this storyboard or the storybook thing to sort of paper in the cracks or to, to fill in the gaps. And and even those felt long. It was like, wow, this is this is a lot of backstory you're throwing at me here that uh, I, I I can't even keep it all straight. Let alone, do I even need it? Well, you know, it all goes back to, you know, show, don't tell, you know, it's right. a movie, show me what's going on. And I, you know, you know, some narration here and there is acceptable, you know, and, but it, it seemed like the narration was only there to, like you said, like, you know, fill in the gaps. And then uh, if you're going to do that, at least kind of pepper it in, you know, make it kind of even and where they just kind of front loaded the, the movie with it and then kind of dropped the device until the very end. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I got, I, I'm surprised we, we actually managed to get almost a, about an hour and 45 minutes in on, on, on Pups Alone. I was worried that we weren't going to get much out of it. Um, before we, we, we talked we, as long as the movie. <laughs> I know. We kind of exactly. For sure. So I, was there anything though that we missed uh, Mitch that we were talking about that, that, uh, that, that we didn't bring up? Um, I mean, just, you know, uh, you know, just kind of how a lot of the voice cast was wasted. Uh, you know, you know, Danny, Tra you, you hired Danny Trejo to be the kind of like the, the, the bad dog of the neighborhood. And he just kind of just, I, I mean, you know, you could. I'm not spoiling anything to say, you know, he winds up helping the dogs at the right. end. But, uh, you know, it, it just seemed kind of like uh, it seemed like something Danny Trejo would do, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, perform voice work that probably took only like an afternoon. But uh, <laughs> it it, uh, you know, it's they didn't utilize him very well. And Rob Schneider uh, was kind of wasted and. Uh, Malcolm McDowell, I mean, you know, I, yeah, and, and, and there's like, you know, just, I, I know Malcolm McDowell's got to pay the bills like everybody, but sheesh, man, Clockwork Orange was a long time ago. <laughs> or even, even Star Trek Generations was a long time ago. So I mean, it's like, I, I remember him on Conan O'Brien talking about that movie because, um, William Shatner was making, uh, of a, a, a he was working on a biography or autobiography at that time. And he goes up to Malcolm McDowell after the scene where Malcolm McDowell kills um, uh, Captain Kirk. And um, he goes up to one of his tape recording. He goes, you've just killed an American icon. How do you feel? <laughs> so I remember him conveying that story to Conan O'Brien and just thinking how funny that was. And that's what I think of with Malcolm McDowell. And you're right. Like here, he's just, he's, you know, he's this ragtag terrier dog. Um, just, just saying lines like there's, yeah. It, it, Jennifer Love Hewitt's in this as well. I mean, these are, I mean, Jennifer Love Hewitt right now, she's on a network TV show still, right? I think that 9-11 show, Emergency, or what, I don't know what it was called. I'm thinking of the Shatner Emergency 911 <laughs> now, but, um, but she still is on a network TV show, I think. So in her case, like, 
you know, I don't know what, you know, maybe this is just an easy check for her. Well, too, I mean, yeah, it, like I said, it was interesting to see who was in front of the camera and who was the voice talent, because you would think uh, Jerry O'Connell and Jennifer Love Hewitt, that that's a pretty good get yeah. if they're in front of the camera. Their voices really aren't that distinctive enough to be talking dogs in a talking <laughs> dog movie. You know what I mean? And it's like, okay, uh, Keith David has one of the most kind of, you know, and and on top of being just like a, a, a great actor and a great, uh, you know, presence in so many movies, like through the years, he's a hell of a voice uh, actor as well. I could see him being the... The, the the gruff bulldog more almost more than Danny Trejo you know what I mean uh or you know or like maybe Malcolm McDowell could have been the the wise bartender you know it seems like you know if they had flip-flopped some of the people doing the voice work with the people that were the uh the uh, uh flesh and blood actors I I, I think it might have made for a better movie but then again it would still be up in the air if the uh, the filmmaking was as rock bottom as it was. Yeah, you make a great point about Jerry O'Connell and Jennifer Love Hewitt's voices because, I mean, Jennifer Love Hewitt in particular, like, I couldn't pick out that that was her talking. But also, Jerry O'Connell, he affects this, like, almost like, like, almost like um, Joey Lawrence kind of voice. Uh, it, it doesn't really sound like him either. Like, they 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 do something with their voices when they they play these, these dog characters that doesn't sound like them, um, that... It was really unique. Like you said, it, did, it, it, it wasn't distinctive enough. And yeah, I mean, Keith David, I mean, I think, you know, probably some of the best usage of our, our tax dollars was when um, he was uh, used for um, uh, uh, commercials for the armed forces, because I think those <laughs> those commercials were fantastic. And so, you know, I think of, uh, you know, he, his voice is, so, like you said, is so distinctive. And he gets a, one scene in this movie uh, behind the bar where he's he's supposed to be like, like espousing wisdom that wasn't really great wisdom it was just sort of like oh hold up your glass and see how clouded it is and now you can't see things as well as you you want and so i guess he was trying to say that the the invention was clouding his 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 view of his family or whatever but yeah you you you, i mean i mean you you imagine this if jerry o'connell is the inventor and jennifer love hewitt is the the neighbor woman you know walking her dog in cocktail dresses um that this is a different movie right that um and you know that it, it it plays out very differently, right? And I guess maybe part of the reason why they were able to get them was, like you said, it was a, an afternoon's worth of work. But it it is fascinating to see it play out this way because, again, their voice work doesn't really stand out much beyond Danny Trejo's work. And who we had in front of the camera, it was it was a little bit different. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, like Jerry O'Connell doesn't sound like Jerry O'Connell. And I mean— <laughs> Jerry O'Connell doesn't have the most distinctive voice, but I could, you know, you would be able to pick him out. Like if, oh, if I looked on IMDb, oh yeah, that's Jerry O'Connell. And there were points in this movie where I thought they were doing like a Steven Seagal, getting some other guy to dub (laughs) over the voice, uh, where I was like, is that even Jerry O'Connell? Like, there's some points when you're like, which dog is talking? Because they just line up all the dogs and it's like, uh, I guess some of the Rob Schneider voice dogs are like, just kind of sound the same. So I'm like, hey, which dog is saying what now? Right, right, right. Because that was an issue too. I, I was just looking up Jerry O'Connell, and actually, it looks like he's been doing a lot of voice work in DC movies. Um, so like uh, Justice League cartoons, um, 
uh, Batman cartoons, things like that. So that might have been where he he fell into this role was that they just said, hey, this is some some quick voice work for you. But, yeah, I mean, you think of him in the 90s, right, that he's sort of this leading man kind of character. Um, you know, he's on Sliders, of course. He's in uh, Jerry Maguire as as Cush. Uh, as um, that, you know, kind of like this known character, you know, Mariah Carey video. Um, and Jennifer Love is kind of the same thing, right? She's a 90s star, even though in her case, I mean, she did, you know, make her way into a, a network TV show currently. So it's, it's, it's interesting that we're kind of just getting them doing this voice work like this. I, again, I, I only, I, I have to believe that there was a thought that this was going to turn into a franchise the way the dog who saved Christmas turned into this franchise that had like seven movies that they thought they could do this. And I guess if you're Jennifer Love Hewitt or you're, you're Jerry O'Connell or Danny Trejo, like, you know, seven movies of, you know, seven afternoons of your time. And if it's tens of thousands of dollars you're making for seven afternoons, maybe, maybe it's worth it, I guess. And you have to wonder too, if any of the voice actors ever saw footage of the, the actual film, right? Probably not. It, you know, I know sometimes like if they're trying to match lips or something, which they don't, they just show the dog and just have the, the, the dialogue over top of it. So I, you know, there's, a part of me that that you know like you said like he might have been doing some other voice gig and they said oh by the way do you want to make an extra 75 bucks or something and yeah gave him these lines or whatever whatever the the going rate is but like i i can't imagine i mean it's not to the level of like the eric roberts talking cat where it's obviously <laughs> like on his cell phone or something or through skype <laughs> yeah it's just not this like you know adequately uh leveled out uh sound with the rest of the soundtrack right. but that's what kind of gives that movie its charm and like the way <laughs> that they terribly like moved the lips so right. I, where they didn't even bother with this one so you know i it, it just seems like every choice that they made for this movie was just wrong or uh foolhardy i mean you know yes having Dolph in the uh the villain role that 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 makes it notable, but that's that's about the only feather in its cap, I think. Yeah, and I just realized something too when you mentioned the talking cat that I think I may have confused the talking cat with the cat from outer space. Um, when I was talking about like McLean Stevenson and um, and, or, or were we talking about the cat from outer space earlier? Uh, the, you, yeah, it was talking cat, but yeah, I I knew what you you had meant when you said the, the cat from outer space. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of known for doing that on this podcast because I did um I remember Ty and Brett were talking about um they're talking about the movie Rules of Engagement and I was like oh is that the one with James Vanderbeek and they're like no that's Rules of Attraction so yeah so I yeah I guess you, you kind of went with it so that was good but when you said it this time I was like because the talking cat I. I haven't actually. I I saw that um, there's a Rift Tracks version of it on Tubi. Yeah, the, I mean, I haven't watched the Rift Tracks version. I, I actually, I think that was one of the first movies I ever like streamed through Netflix. I think I watched it on my computer, and it was. I mean, it was. It was typical of what you know was offered, like in like you know Netflix streaming, like you know ten years ago or whatever. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I mean, if it wasn't Dakota and uh, Eric Roberts, it wouldn't have been, you know, I wouldn't have been watching a talking cat movie, you know. Right. 
Well, because what, what did they, they joke? So I think it was on um the on on um riff tracks. They joked that it looks like like he has an anus in his mouth that's talking, like or something <laughs> like that. Because the the slip that they used it for the which is it it, it is a fascinating device, right? Because that's that's always a question too with these talking dog movies or these talking animal movies. Is it is it better to mimic the talking? Is it you know maybe have the dog eating peanut butter to look like they're they're moving their their mouth while they're saying something? Or is it better to have it, like you said, like the look who's talking thing, where it's just sort of like animals are communicating with each other somehow and, and humans don't know what they're saying. Um, and but this movie, excuse me, this movie went in a completely different path, right, because it it not only just did the voices over the animals, but a lot of cases, the animals didn't really seem like they were doing anything that matched what they were talking about or anything. Well, I mean, there was there was an opportunity there to kind of bring bring it all together with the talking dog collar, because mm -hmm. early on they tried to put the dog the the dog collar on uh, uh, the dog, and what he's saying is, you know, on the soundtrack isn't what's coming out of the dog collar. <laughs> so there was an opportunity there to be like, oh, you know, like our dogs are misunderstood. You know, we don't really understand them, and then kind of bring it all together at the end. But they by that time there are so many other loose ends and subplots and note plots and it, that that kind of got lost i, I mean i i think that could like you said if if you're dealing with like a 90 minute uh hallmark movie uh and that's like your through line yes that that works but there is about you know an entire season uh a television show, show season of subplots jammed into <laughs> 106 minutes and none of them ever got an adequate payoff yeah and maybe that's the ultimate downfall of this movie i mean i mean a big piece of the problem is that the jokes don't land i think that's like one major piece but i think like you you know what we're talking about here is it sounds like they just tried to do too much with this movie that they had too many stories going on they tried to make something too big um that sometimes you just gotta go in with the david dakota mindset of just like banging this out in three days the, the script is easy. We're going to do one or two locations and and that's it. And I think this movie tried to be too big for that. And I think sometimes too big when it comes to a, a talking dog movie, that's probably like a, maybe that's the lesson to be learned here that there's no need to go too big on a talking dog movie. Yeah. Just stay in your lane. Uh, know your role. Uh, just, you know, it, it, it just seemed like maybe, like you said, three screenwriters, maybe too many cooks. Uh, the uh, the shoot was kind of uh, parceled out, maybe a compact shooting schedule. Uh, and, you know, maybe just uh, just stick to your premise, stick to the, the dogs foiling a robbery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, maybe that's a good place for us to leave this conversation because i want to while i have you here we're doing a, essentially a christmas uh movie i want to bring up your favorite christmas movie again because uh, it's been a, a couple years since we've had you on to talk christmas movies and i want to kind of mention uh el elves while we're still here oh yeah i can talk about elves all night what do you want to talk about <laughs> well because well, i i think it, it's i think it's available on on youtube but it is i because I, I, you know i watched it not long after we i think I think I had you on right after I kind of came off my hiatus and we talked about like Marvel or we talked about like direct to video Marvel movies like Punisher, things like that, I think. And then we did a segment at the end to talk about elves. And 
I watched it like soon after that. And it is, it, it, you know, we, we, comparing elves to what we just watched. Um, the, the only thing about elves that I would say was 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 harder to watch than everything else in Pups Alone was the, the cat killing scene, um, which is obviously not really killing a cat. It's just the idea of it for me was was too much. But like there's so much about elves that works that 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 shouldn't work, I guess, is maybe the way to describe it. Yeah, I mean, it swings for the fences. It's the only movie I've ever seen in which, like, you know, there's a Nazi conspiracy uh, to uh, uh, mate a virgin with a, an elf to bring about the Antichrist. And it, it it's the only movie I've seen that rips off both uh, Dawn of the Dead and Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, it's the only movie I've seen where uh, Dan Haggerty is the uh, the the fresh out of AA ex-detective department store Santa, uh, you know, hero. I mean, it's just, it's one of those movies that just, it has it all. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those movies too, like we were saying, like, you know, kind of with uh, Altitude, it's just, it has that X factor. It's like, there's a lot of craziness going on, but there's something in there that nobody ever counted on. And it's, it's just this kind of, uh, world building uh just kookiness to it and unlike uh uh pups alone like it it every scene kind of builds uh to the next it and it gets crazier and crazier as it goes along i mean you have uh mutant elves uh castrating department store santas i mean <laughs> you have uh you know just it, it, it's just uh you have probably the worst uh, body double in history for Deanna Lund, uh, who get, has a great uh, bathtub death scene. I mean, you you got classic dialogue like, "What evil forces? Who's going to destroy me?" <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's it's just a perfect movie. And if ever I was in charge of a boutique. Uh, physical media company that would be like spy number zero zero one that would be that would be our launch title because i it's i think part of it i know it's on youtube but like a lot of the kind of mystique about that movie and why it's not as kind of like heavily talked about as like a silent night deadly night or uh black christmas or you know any other kind of annual Christmas favorites is that it, it, it is kind of hard to see. It's only been on uh, video. It's never been on DVD, but I hopefully, you know, with, uh, with it being on YouTube, it'll gain a, a bigger cult following. Um, I've been watching it December 23rd every year since I think 1992. That's been like our Christmas tradition. Uh, and it's just, it's just, like I said, it's just a perfect movie. Yeah. Now I haven't gotten around to reviewing it yet, but there are, it does have 42 critic reviews, which for a movie like this that came out in the late 80s, an AIP film, low budget, that isn't on anything other than, you know, the, the YouTube version of it. The fact that it has that many external reviews, I think, is a sign of the popularity that it has, that it should have, a you know, a, a physical media release. I, you know, I, I think for me, that's a that's a definite. I, I saw that the guys that come up, it's did it, which I think a big reason why they did it is it's got Dan Haggerty, which. 
my, my favorite scene with Haggerty, one of my favorite scenes, I guess there's a lot of good favorite scenes with Haggerty in this, but I love it when he's, he, he becomes the, the, the department store Santa and he's, he's, he's hanging out at the, he, he's sleeping at the department store because there's no place to stay because he's a disgraced police officer. And, um, the, the main character, um, is a teenage girl who works at the department store and she's having her friends there to party. And he kind of goes downstairs and sees them at the party. And it's kind of this sort of gruff, like, all right, you kids, uh, you know, just just do whatever you're doing and get at it. You know, kind of like, you know, like he's 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 the adult in the room. And but he doesn't want to be the adult in the room. And I love that concept because I can see myself in that person now. I mean, I'm I'm not much younger than, than Haggerty was when he made the movie, which is kind of crazy to think now. Right. That we're, we're getting up there to that to that age of the Haggerty was as, as Santa Claus. And I could see myself in a similar situation. I mean, I hope I'm not in a situation where I'm so down on my luck that I've got to sleep in a department store, which because one, <laughs> it's it's not going to be a good situation now because a lot of them are closed. And so you're going to be like at a Target or something. But but two, like I could see myself if kids were partying at that department store just being like, all right, listen, just just keep it down and don't break anything. You know, like, like I'm not going to I'm not going to tell on you, you know, even though I'm the adult here. And I guess it was that realization, too, for me that I would be the adult now in that situation, that I'm no longer the teens partying that Dan Haggerty has to tell to keep it down. And that for some reason, that that piece, I mean, just the whole Dan Haggerty element of this movie it just adds a piece that's on top of Nazi created elves and like incestual relationships and all this other stuff that's happening in it. Dan Haggerty as Santa is just another fantastic piece of it. And two, like the, uh, that scene before that, there's like a, the whole rigmarole with putting duct tape on the lock of the door so they can come and go freely through the, uh, the mall and, or the department store. And it's, it's like, there's, there's like a, good seven or eight minutes devoted to duct tape and that level of who has the duct tape when has the door been duct taped when has it not been duct taped who can enter and who cannot pass that is filmmaking beyond anything in pups alone because we always know who is not going to be able to get into or out of the the department store and like you i mean hitchcock would be very hard pressed to to like move all those pieces uh of the uh the chessboard uh the, the cinematic chessboard uh as accurately as uh jeff mandel did <laughs> and and it's it's a fascinating thing too because the concept of the the small town downtown department store even of itself is gone now right that like Right. So many of those have been run out of business. And I, I remember as a kid, there was one in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, I think it was Newberries or something like that. I can't remember. But I remember going there as a kid. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd park the sort of a diagonal angle parking and you'd go in and, you know, they're, they're usually a, a counter, which I think in this movie, I think in Elves, the, the main character, I think she works at the counter. Um, or she, she works like that, you know, kind of great right, because it's donuts, right? Doesn't she serve donuts there? Well, she, she works in the, the restaurant. Uh, part of the store, which is another thing that they don't really have uh, yeah. that's kind of gone by the wayside. Yeah, and so so even that element of the movie, like you said, when 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 they go into like the 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 detail about the duct tape and who can get in and who can get out, it's an element of that kind of movie that we don't we, you can't do anymore. Right nowadays, there's no stores like that. In downtown areas, right? They're all big chains, big box chains that are located out in the suburban suburban areas, kind of on strip mall, you know, plots. But then also, 
the company has a very sophisticated security system that everybody's got to type in and do and all of that kind of stuff. So it's you, you, the, the fact that they even needed to go through the detail about the duct tape is, is in and of itself sort of a piece of nostalgia. Right. And it's it's funny because I know there are like some uh, younger moviegoers I've seen on either you know Twitter or here and there online that say like, well, I can't even watch a movie if unless they have cell phones or something because it, it and and it's just so funny how like that movie to us it, it, that brings us nostalgia and it would seem like the Stone Age to a lot of younger viewers. Yeah, because the entire concept of what what happens in elves, right? It's the, you know, the, I think for a lot of younger people they don't remember, and and it's not like I remember it very well, but I remember it well enough that I remember sort of where I grew up in my, you know, where, where the mall became the end all and it kind of re, re, it sort of destroyed all the downtown businesses. And then people got sick of the mall and the downtown area opened up all these boutique businesses that ended up running the mall out of business. Like it's kind of that that process happened. But then in, in between, right, you get the Walmarts and the Targets and all those things that encroach on both of them and sort of you know, fill that need. And and so there isn't a place. I mean, yeah, I mean, even just the idea of eating at a department store, right? Like, I mean, I guess now Target has a Starbucks in it, right? So I guess you can go sit in the Starbucks and have a bite to eat or McDonald's, right? There's a McDonald's and a Walmart. But it's not the same as like, you know, going to the Kmart in the back of it and getting a grilled cheese and, and chips and, you know, a bunch of old ladies are, you know, smoking cigarettes and waiting for the next blue light special or something like that. Yeah, it's it's definitely you know sitting on the the stools and uh, you know like the fifties diner counter you know it, it's it's a very kind of uh, distinct kind of thing that they just don't like you said there are versions of that that still exist but not not that version. Yeah, and it's funny because thinking about you know how long you've been watching elves as a, as a Christmas tradition, it's sort of almost like the. The, the evolution of retail throughout that entire period, right? Which I, I didn't really consider before when you mentioned how long you've been watching it, but um, there's sort of, you, you've kind of been watching this each year and with each year, it's be, like the nostalgia factor for some of the elements of the film have, have kind of grown over time. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because our big mall, which is kind of, you know, just kind of, barely hanging on right now especially after covid like that was the new mall i think they opened like 91 like the year two two before we started watching elves so yeah this is a very interesting insight because i you know now uh like i said when when i we watched it <clears throat> pardon me with my daughter last year and she was kind of like you know she kind of likens it to almost like a boscovs or which you know they you know, a lot of the malls have like that kind of anchor stores, but not like like you said, like going downtown and parking and walking to the uh, to to the big uh, department store. Uh, it that like you you get versions of that, like a Target or Walmart, but you don't get like like I guess we had like Leggett and Hess and you know uh, places like that. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, here in Philadelphia, they still have the Macy's downtown. But, you know, the thing, you know, talking to my wife about that, because she grew up here in Philadelphia, where I, I just moved here about eight years ago, um, that 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 Macy's, which is actually the Wanamaker building, which is where a, a good portion of Mannequin was filmed. So you can go in there and kind of see locations where where things happen in Mannequin. Um, but, you know, she was talking about, like, the different 
brands that were in that location. And, and it was like one of those things where Macy's just eventually, they were buying up so many companies that they just eventually bought it and, and, and have it. And so now it's, it's a Macy's there. Um, but that's even like the thing, right? Is that like, like not even a chain downtown, you know, the idea of it being like a, you know, that, that you had department stores that weren't chains that, that were, um, that were just their own thing before they would all either get run out of business or bought out. It's like, a. It, it it was a it's a concept that yeah you you don't think it, you know it's like when you watch a movie like L's like you don't I don't even really think of that kind of thing until I watch a movie like L's and I'm like yeah I remember that you know like there's no place where you even remember that that existed you know that that, that I would you know my, my mom would we would go down down um, downtown to a, a department store and even then my mom was not going to that place like she was like no I'm going to Kmart instead or I'm going to go to Woolworths instead which that even went out of business and um. I remember she she stopped going to the Woolworths because when I was in kindergarten, my, my sister was a little bit younger, w- was in Woolworths with her. And I guess a, a clerk yelled at my sister. And I was like, well, I'm not coming back in here ever again. And so, you know, of course, you know, that's the thing, right? You, when you say you're not going to go into a store again, you just wait until it gets bought out by somebody else and it becomes something new eventually. But um, yeah, because it's, it's like the, the, there's so many crazy things about elves. And then it's like I'm kind of like fixated on the uh, the, the retail aspect of it, I guess. Well, so much of the uh, the story takes place in the store, yeah, and uh, it's almost like you know a, a character unto itself. And you know the there's like the little whiny uh, manager guy who, you know, anything bad happens, he said there hasn't been anything like this happened in Gollum's in 50 years, and they say it enough, and you're like, well, I wonder what happened 50 years ago. <laughs> And then when you start thinking about it, it was like, well, 50 years ago would have been the 40s. And then would that have actually been uh, the grandfather with the Nazis? And, you know, like, yeah, it, it kind of works out. Like, were they doing their experiments in, uh, you know, the the aisle of the, you, you know, the, the the ladies boutique aisle in, in Gollum's department store? So I, I think there's room for a prequel there. Like, you know, I, I have my theories. Like I said, I've, I've seen it now for 30, you know, going on 30 years. So I do have my my uh, head cannons and my fan theories about it. Yeah, it's a, it's another great point because that was that was a thing, too. Right. In the 80s was that I mean, you had like chopping malls, a great example. But um, you you had movies, especially horror movies, that took place in shopping locations, and it was a great thing because you could just get your hands on anything you needed, right? So it's like, you know, Haggerty's got to take out this elf um, demon thing, and he's got guns in the in the 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 sporting goods section, or you know, he you know he he, he you know whatever he needs in the space there, and and it does it, it it's also a fun aspect of the movies that um you know that that. You know, I, I, I guess, yeah, just thinking about a movie I watched recently, Black Friday, that um, was, was shot in a, um, an old Babies R Us in, in Massachusetts. And that movie doesn't quite use the space. And I, mean, I was trying to think of why the movie wasn't working as well for me as it, as it should have. I mean, it did work. It was a fun movie. But I kind of think that elves used the space even better, I think. Well, yeah, it, it said uh, with the guns, it says gifts for mom. I mean, there's even like a... <laughs> A tongue-in-cheekness about it that, you know, it's kind of a a, a winking uh, at the audience, but that but it creates so many uh, kind of uh, just its own kind of crazy internal logic that you can't help but love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like reading somebody 
somebody's synopsis, they refer to Dan Haggerty as the renegade loose cannon Santa Claus. I mean, it's it you I, again, it's not something you know. We we talk about how Dolph was in the movie we just watched, and he's dressed up like Santa and he's doing some goofy stuff. But I mean, Haggerty in this film. Is I mean he's just essentially like an action lead who's like kind of down on his luck and dressed as Santa Claus, who ends up like kind of falling into this fighting elves thing that was just so and and he plays it so well that it's like another element of it that that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, I mean there there's like a genuineness to it and a heartfelt uh, the way the way he delivers his lines it's just uh, so genuine and like really kind of moving actually i mean there there are some scenes where it's, it's almost downright touching i mean he brought his aim a game to a movie about killer nazi elves and it's just uh it's, it's just a terrific performance yeah that's the best way to describe it, it, it you know and and when you go to his imdb page and it says the known for and it has four movies elves is number two um Big Stand is number one, I guess, a movie with Rob Schneider. But um, but uh, speaking <laughs> of Rob Schneider, but um, but Elves is number two on his list of what what he's known for, which I think is fantastic. That that is that because it's not like you know these, these what, what was it like that he did the um Grizzly Adams movies? Yeah, that was that, his uh, that was his thing. Yeah, yeah, the TV movies, TV, you know, all that stuff. I mean, yeah, the fact that it's Elves, I think, is a is a sign of how big Elves is and why. It needs that the like you said, like the vinegar syndrome. One of those companies needs to 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 release it. Yeah, like you said, I, if I ever had my uh, my own boutique label, that I mean, that would be spine number one. I I would be, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if, or if anybody uh, is thinking of releasing uh, elves on home video, I would definitely uh, be available for uh, film commentary. Uh, uh, you know, we could bring a camera crew to the annual uh, Elves viewing. Uh, we could, uh, you know, I, I'd be available for on-camera interviews, uh, you know, set walkthroughs. We could find the old uh, department store and, you know, I could I could do an on-location uh, kind of guide. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm totally game for it. Yeah, I would love to see. I mean, I, I would. I think that's one thing that I would. I would watch the movie if, if if they had you do the commentary. I think that would be fantastic to watch and and have your commentary for it because it 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 kind of add it would add an element to the movie. I think that um, yeah. It, it, again, if it's like a nice you know transfer and and then you, you know we've got your commentary kind of going over certain pieces of it like like you said like you know like the the gifts for mom and in, in the gun section you know those kinds of things i think would would just enhance the film that much more so yeah anybody who's listening to this especially if you if you um you know ty and brett whenever they're on we always talk about like movies that we think vinegar syndrome should be releasing and i think even we talked about i think mill creek put out the andy sadar's films but again you know like you know having that kind of high quality blu-ray i think it's there's enough people if, if this thing had 42 has 42 critic reviews and it's the number two movie for Dan Haggerty's career. It's got enough interest that I think if they put this out on Blu-ray next Christmas. It would it would be sold out immediately. I think if they, you know, Vinegar Syndrome put out 400 copies, they would sell immediately. Well, I think I think the problem with Vinegar Syndrome is they only do uh, movies that are on film. 
Right. And they preserve, you know, they're big in film uh, preservation. And I think the it was shot on film, but it was edited on video, which mm. kind of gives it that kind of weird hazy look that, right. you know, that which is kind of very unique to that uh, picture. And I think... I, I, I'm pretty sure that is the holdup. And I think in order for them to do it, you, they would basically have to recut the entire film frame by frame. And I think it would just be a big headache. But any other company, even if it was just a, a, a DVD release, I mean, I, like I said, I watch I watch so much crap now. It's like, <laughs> it, you know, even on Tubi, like it, uh, a lot of the the stuff on Tubi is just a VHS rip. Yeah. And honestly, I does it really need to be cleaned up? I, I kind of like it the way it is. Yeah, I mean, you think of those Godfrey Ho movies, like when you were on, we were talking about a Godfrey Ho films. I mean, they, they don't need to be cleaned up there, you know, and, and mo- a good chunk of those are on Tubi. And, and yeah, they, they, they do the trick. And it might even lose something. Uh, you know, I, it might lose that kind of... Uh, you know, hazy quality that makes it just it, like I think only one movie looks like that, and it's elves. And it's just, <laughs> it's just this otherworldly kind of gloss to everything. And I just, I wouldn't have it any other way. No, and I was kind of one thing. I think when we when I watched Pups Alone and realized it was going to be a dud when I was watching it that we were going to, I was kind of glad having you on again. I think for for a Christmas movie to be able to chat about elves again because I think it's. It's definitely one. I mean, I think in terms of like the company that you're watching it with, you know, keep in mind the fact that there is a, a scene where the mother kills the daughter's cat. Um, she drowns it in, in the toilet. Um, it's kind of one of those things where she just like kind of puts a stuffed animal in in the toilet and you hear like a kind of thing. Um, so there's that scene. And then there's the idea that the daughter has like an incestual relationship, I think, with her grandfather. Right. Is that what it is um, to to have the um, the the baby? Or something. Is it, is it, or maybe it's your yeah, father. The, the, the mom, the mom, oh, right. uh, and the grandfather uh, produced the 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 virgin suitable uh, with the suitable bloodline that would be uh, suitable to mate with the elf. That's right. That that's with that. Yeah. So so those might be dark for for mixed company. So just know who you're you're, you're watching the film with. But I think. If you know that the people you're watching the film with will kind of get past that for all the other great parts that we're talking about, this is this is definitely like you said, it's it's a it's a Christmas tradition kind of thing. Like I've I've been finding it on YouTube since you brought it up um, when you were on the show. I've been watching it, and I, I I can't believe I haven't reviewed it yet. I don't know why that is. Um, I I need to maybe I thought I did, and that's why I haven't because I I thought I I put a review out for it, but it's it's like you said, it's 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 worth the the Christmas tradition. This is a fun. It's 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 dark in places, but overall, I mean, again, we are talking about a movie that's, you know, Nazi experiments creating elves. It's it, with Dan Haggerty as a loose cannon Santa Claus. It, it doesn't get much better than that. And the fact that there's only one elf and it's called elves. I mean, right. what more? I, I mean, it's just like like I said, like I've watched it almost 30 times and I, I still find things to love about it. And, you know, it, happy to bring more people into the cult of elves i think it's one one movie that that definitely deserves uh, a a big cult and yes the, the cult is growing but we uh we, we demand more followers and so if anyone within the sound of my voice uh 
watch elves because it is just it, it's just a, a yuletide tradition. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to give you an idea, I mean, 42 critic reviews. Pups alone only has three, which again, critic reviews aren't everything. But um, you know, uh, Kindergarten Cop two had 33. So again, I think a movie like Elves that comes out in the late 80s, an AIP production that's only on VHS and now really only on YouTube because to find one of those used VHSs would be, that would be a huge, huge coup. Um, I don't know. I, I did notice since it was reviewed by the guys that come up, it's, I wonder if they have a VHS copy. And I'm assuming you must have a copy of it, right? Yeah, I had, it was funny, uh, one year, uh, when I rent, uh, my brother was going to rent it for me, and he said, just out of curiosity, can you see when the last time this was uh, rented? And the lady brought it up. She's like, well, yeah, you, your, your family rented it last December twenty third. Oh, and then she's like, yeah, uh, your family rented it last <laughs> the, the December thirty third after twenty third after that. And it's that we were the only one, and and like he was like, well, can I just buy it? And they're like, yeah, because you're the only one <laughs> renting it. So that was my Christmas present one year. So, uh, so I mean, it was it was funny. I I I I don't know how far their their ledger went back, but there there's a possibility that I was the only one renting uh, elves <laughs> from the video store back in the day. That's awesome. That's awesome. I remember my my, my friend and I we were, we were obsessed with Bad Taste, the Peter Jackson movie, and. Oh, yeah. um, I remember we um, we were recording it. We were renting a VCR so we could make our own copies of it. And I remember we reserved it. And the people at the video store thought that was hilarious that we were reserving bad taste because we were the only people renting it. And so, um, yeah, so that was it's kind of funny with those old video store stories like that, where you get the those those kinds of movies where it's like you find one in there and you just rent it all the time and nobody else is touching it. Well, and I, I think too that that's kind of the sense of community, like you know, having friends over, uh, you know, to watch uh, a movie like, like Bad Taste. It, it, I mean, the more people you have uh, to watch that, the better. Um, and Elves is the same way because I mean, it's a laugh riot. I mean, for years I've wanted, you know, hope that uh, maybe Riff Tracks or somebody would. You know, riff over it, and at, I don't know <clears throat> if it would uh, lose anything because it already kind of is kind of weird and funny on its own terms. Yeah, yeah. You you make a great point with that because I'm so like certain movies like 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 Cool as Ice was fantastic with the riff tracks. Like the the riff tracks version of that was really great. But Samurai Cop, I remember watching that one with the riff tracks, and it was it was funny. But it was almost like it didn't need the riff tracks, like you said. Um, and so, yeah, elves, because elves is kind of in that that samurai cop category of um, I don't I don't know if it's Ty or Brett from Columbus. They 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 have that expression, one of those kinds of movies. Um, it it elves is in that category of like this sort of like cult thing that's just it's so so out there, but so much fun that I think you might be right that it it might not be necessary to 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 be riffing on it. Well, too, it's like when I saw the uh, uh, they recently had Return of Swamp Thing in the theaters, uh, the riff tracks. Yeah, and it's <clears throat> it's funny. Yes. And I'm glad I got to see Return of Swamp Thing in the theater. But it's a Winerski movie and he's already kind of got the in jokes and 
kind of the comic relief stuff. So it, uh, to have uh, Mike, Kevin, and Bill kind of chirping in, it's funny, but it, it, the movie kind of already does that for itself. Yeah, that's a great point because when we were we we when we were discussing that movie, um, we were talking about Winorski. Uh, I think it was Winorski and Olin Ray. We were talking about both, but when we talked about Return of the Swamp Thing, it was uh, kind of like the, a lot of the send ups he was doing to like old fifties horror films. And yeah, there was a, a major tongue in cheek aspect to the film already that it, it's it's not quite like Catalina Caper, which I thought was kind of a genius approach that MST3K did to that because that was a comedy and they were able to rip the comedy. Whereas I think you're right. I think Winorski kind of nails it so much that it's almost like, you know, what are you making fun of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, I, I, I think sometimes riff, riff tracks is a mis, mixed blessing because, uh, you know, mystery science theory with a few exceptions, you know, exclusively riff, bad, bad movies. And, you know, sometimes when Riff Tracks gets a hold of kind of the current hits or, you know, movies that we wouldn't really kind of consider bad, it's kind of a toss-up whether it's going to work or not. And, I mean, yes, they're all, you know, I haven't watched Riff Tracks or I haven't laughed or anything, (laughs) but they're, they're, I I think sometimes if if they kind of stay in the lane of, you know, grazy schlock, I think, I think that's the when they're best in their wheelhouse yeah yeah i agree and i think it, i think when you, when, you, when you talk about something like an elves it's it's like i mean there could be I, I i wouldn't be surprised that there could be like some some jokes about dan Haggerty that they could make that we wouldn't think of that would be hilarious or jokes about the elves or anything like that that, that we wouldn't think of that would be hilarious but you know i think you're right too that this is not necessarily a movie that needs that like it's it's almost like you don't even need to necessarily rip the movie. You just need to like enjoy it and and get a kick out of it. Yeah, and I, I think you know I, we really have our own kind of set. Uh, you know, almost like Rocky Horror Picture Show. We <laughs> holler out lines and uh, you know during it, we know you know when all the big scenes are coming up. So it's it's more I, I think uh, of a like a Rocky horror experience. Yeah. Uh, I'm not dressing up like Dan Haggerty yet, but <laughs> at, at some point, <clears throat> you know, I could let the, my, my beard grow out a little bit and get a little bit more gray in there and slap on a Santa suit. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, like I, I, I think, you know, they're just some one of a kind movies like, uh, you know, and I, I put, I would put, you know, plan nine in, into the, the conversation that would, I think what they were really trying to do was to, to, to really try to make a good movie that had a lot of goofy elements in it. Yeah. And they succeeded. And uh, it's those goofy elements that kind of elevate it uh, to kind of a work of demented genius. Because, like I said, very few movies combine Santa, Santa and elves and Nazis and Dan Haggerty. And... <laughs> And the fact that they do it with with a straight face, like I said, there's some winking, but like uh, that to me works better than, you know, something where, you know, they're kind of, you know, where do you put jokes into that? I mean, it's funny to begin with. 
Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things you mentioned about dressing up like Dan Haggerty on his IMDb page, one of the pictures is of him in the 70s on uh, Battle of the Network Stars. So, like, that's, like, those are the kind of jokes that maybe, like, the guys at Rift Tracks could make those kinds of jokes. But, again, too, like, are those going to land for everybody either, you know? Um, and... Again, like, do you even need, like, that's the thing about Dan Haggerty, right, is we, we know who he is, and so we don't even necessarily need to make fun of him, right? Like, we just, it, and I guess there's the fact, too, that Dan Haggerty, the fact that he plays it so straight and gives such an earnest performance in this movie takes it to a, a level that, again, doesn't, you know, you wouldn't expect with something like this. Well, yeah, I mean, if he, you know, if he had been, like, uh, making wisecracks and, you know, <laughs> jokes and stuff it wouldn't have worked but like i said when he makes that touching monologue uh you know like you know talking about his dog pea shooter shooter who died you know when he was a small boy i mean you don't know whether to laugh or cry because it's just he just on the nose and then when he's delivering the tough guy dialogue like like you know is that elf yours like i, I mean like it i mean that that alone is funnier than any kind of like, oh, you're a Nazi. Uh, so, you, you know, like if he had, you know, made a like a quip, like a dirty hairy quip or something, right. you know, uh, it, to me, it's just uh, it, it works because we believe Dan Haggerty's performance. Yeah, it's almost like he he steps into this thing because of the, the the situation with the daughter, where she's got the mom who's crazy, the grandfather who turns out to be her father who's also out there and all of this, and it's almost like this 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 poor girl is is like, you know, struggling for some sort of adult figure in her life, and and Haggerty almost like he puts himself in that role and says, man, imagine if I was this guy and here's this girl crying out for like a father figure. He he like puts that into the role in a way that like I, I I was that was one major thing I was not expecting in this movie was him kind of taking on that piece of the role. Well, yeah, the, and then there's even like uh, like you said, there there's a uh, he he almost becomes uh, Santa at some point because I mean that's what we would expect Santa to do would be uh, to. Not only deliver gifts, but to uh, protect uh, the good little girls uh, from Nazis. So, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's like it, the only way to really kind of describe it is just, uh, you know, his his performance is grounded in a reality uh, of you know, his backstory. Is he used to be a detective. He's uh, a recovering alcoholic. Uh, you know, it's all these like cliched kind of cop cliches that we've seen before, but he plays it with like the earnesty of like, like, like an Academy Award nominee. Yeah. I mean, you take any of those clips out of context and put, you know, best supporting actor nominee Dan Haggerty. And they're an Oscar clip, uh, and I'm being, you know, kind of silly, but yeah, but I mean, that's the level, you know, a game level of uh, acting that he brings to the role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 something that the movie you wouldn't have expected the movie to have, but because it has it, again, it's like 
it's just another piece of this thing that, like you said, when you first mentioned it to me about elves, and I don't know why I hadn't seen it yet. I don't remember why I hadn't. I, I felt like I had when I started watching it. I felt like it, it, it was familiar, but I think it maybe I had seen it a long time ago, but I don't remember. But when I watched it again, I was just like, I can't believe like the, the Haggerty piece of this. Like it was like just like another thing that I wasn't because you know, Nazi elves is that's enough. Like you said, Nazi elf um, is, is as it as it should be in the film. You know, a Nazi elf is enough. Right. That's that's going to get you over the goal line in most cases. Um, and so the, the Haggerty element as Santa, as the, the, the renegade Santa loose cannon cop character kind of just pushes it over the goal line. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's all these different pieces of a puzzle that maybe shouldn't fit together. But because the the puzzle pieces are so different, uh, that's probably why it worked so well. Yeah, yeah. And, and so maybe it, maybe it was good that we kind of had this conversation to leave things in a in a better place. Um, and that again, Pups Alone, I think it just it just it just didn't land for us. And it 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 is. You know, again, we're talking about the, you know, looking at the slider bar. Elves is not a slider bar kind of movie. It moves at a good <laughs> pace and it kind of gets through everything very quickly. So maybe it was good to leave it on that note. But before we wrap up, Mitch, was there anything that you wanted to plug? Uh, just right now, I'm I'm still, depending on what, you know, Elon Musk does with Twitter, I'm still on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to crash and burn like they say it, it, it will, but uh, I'm still on there. Uh Still on uh, blogger.com. You can look at me, uh, Video Vacuum, um, and uh, Video Vacuum on Twitter. And you can check out some of my books on uh, Amazon.com. You can search my name, Mitch Lovell. Uh, my latest one is uh, The Bloody Book of Horror. And uh, I should, I'm working on a kung fu book, which hopefully might not be the end of this year, but it'll definitely be in the coming months. So, Keep an eye out for that. Yeah, that would be exciting. So one thing you can do, so uh, it's Mitch Lovell, and Lovell is spelled L-O-V-E-L-L. Um, but you can also, I think you, you have an author page, I think, right? So you can follow the yes. author page. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to do it is to follow your author page because then you'll get the notification when uh, the Kung Fu movie, uh, book comes out. But, yeah, the Bloody Book of Horror, I think I, I've, I've mentioned it a few times. Um, you know, we're talking about elves and being a, a part of people's collections. I think the Bloody Book of Horror for people, I know, especially horror fans, really like to collect physical media. And I think your Bloody Book of Horror um, is a great addition to people's horror collections. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I try to uh, I, I try to give them bite-sized reviews, but still informative, and uh, try to keep uh, enough variety in there where it doesn't feel like I'm repeating myself or uh, kind of speaking to all kinds of uh, horror lovers and uh, you know who love different genres, different eras, uh, different uh, just kind of. You know, trying to cover all the bases while still kind of uh, leaving room for, uh, you know, what's new and what's next. Yeah. And I think, you know, horror is one that's kind of I, I, I'm it's underrepresented on my, on my site just mostly because I think the action stuff is what people seem to glom onto more. It's, it's sort of always been that because I think that the horror ecosystem is bigger than uh, than the action, you know, the low budget action ecosystem. But. Horror is an area that I've always been a fan of. And I mean, especially a movie like Elves, but um, you know, I'm kind of more into horror comedies. 
but I still like, I mean, especially old ones. I love, you know, watching Sven Gulli on a Saturday night and just seeing whatever horror movie he, he shows on there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love Sven. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think your, your, your bloody book of horror, like you said, it covers a lot of different errors, which I think is, is, is fantastic, but it kind of, like you said, the bite size element of it, I think it's just, it's a, it's a great piece to, you know, I think when people are talking about physical media, I mean, your, your book is, is cheaper than most, uh, uh, you know, if, if they're buying the actual physical copy. Um, and I always say, you know, two Kindles a good way too, because, um, for us that that have books on on Amazon, we actually get. I don't know if, if you're the same as me. We get pretty much the same royalty for a Kindle purchase as you do um, the paperback purchase. Oh yeah, it's 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 pretty close. Yeah, yeah, and so people don't always realize that. And I think the other thing people don't realize is you don't need an actual Kindle to buy to to, to get the book on Kindle. You can put an app on your smartphone um, or your tablet that um, doesn't have to be a Kindle tablet to be able to get Kindle books. Yeah, I mean, they really do uh, make it easy to 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 get it uh, available to you. And like you say, if you get it uh, through Kindle, you don't have to wait for shipping or you know worry about it being uh, delivered in time for Christmas. It's it's already right there on your device. Yeah, yeah, you can check it out right there. But but also too, I think for those physical media collections that you know we I always see them online. And people have these huge bookshelves and everything like that. For those people, um, yeah, Bloody Book of Horror is a great addition to your your already big collection that I'm sure you have. I appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. Well, well, thank you again, Mitch, for coming on. I know the the movie itself was a bit of a grind, but um, but I think we had a good conversation about it, and of course the the elves conversation. I think kind of helped to cleanse the palate there. And uh, absolutely, yeah, it kind of got me back in into the proper headspace. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well thanks again, <laughs> thanks again, Mitch, and thanks everybody for listening. And um, yeah, we'll talk soon. Bye, everyone. Awesome.